0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Go Bold. I'm your host, Jody Atariwala. We here at Go Bold pride ourselves on bringing senior leaders to you, and we also pride ourselves on preserving history, which is what the last two episodes and this episode does to a T. In our last two episodes, we had the pleasure to visit with Commander Corey Gleason of the Royal Canadian Navy, who at the time was the commanding officer of HMCS Harry DeWolf, Canada's first Arctic and offshore patrol vessel, and is the namesake of the class. Our previous chats were from Commander Gleason's quarters aboard HMCS Harry DeWolf when it was at Canadian Forces Base Esquimalt in British Columbia. That marked the halfway point of HMCS Harry DeWolf's historic first operational deployment which circumnavigated North America in a counterclockwise fashion. The first half of the circumnavigation started in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then went up and into the Northwest Passage and then around Alaska before heading south to Victoria. Please take the time to listen to the last two episodes and get an appreciation for the ship and its crew and everything they did up to that point. It's all from Commander Gleason's first hand perspective, so if you're interested in the capabilities of Canada's new, Arctic and offshore patrol vessels, these episodes are gold. The story didn't end in Victoria, of course, because there's a lot more to cover for the rest of the epic deployment. For this episode, we are privileged to have Commander Gleason rejoin us, and this time from Halifax. Our chat happened soon after HMCS Harry DeWolf returned from its inaugural deployment, and I dare say that collectively, These three episodes comprise some of the most detailed accounts of the deployment that you will ever hear. My sound was a bit compromised, but Commander Gleason comes through crystal clear, and he's the one you really want to hear anyways, so I really hope you'll enjoy this episode, because you'll hear about leadership, you'll hear about the ship embarking a United States Coast Guard law enforcement detachment... You'll hear about operating new multi-role rescue boats, chasing down drug smugglers, manning the ship and comparisons to other naval vessels, what it's like to go through the Panama Canal, dodging storms, and so much more. All of these are first ever events for the Harry DeWolf class ships. It really is an epic deployment, and we have the privilege to hear all about it from the first commanding officer himself, Commander Corey Gleason. Before we begin, here are a few words about TALUS Canada, who helped bring you this episode in more ways than one. Wherever safety and security are critical, TALUS delivers. TALUS today provides solutions to some of the Canadian Armed Forces' most complex challenges. TALUS is Canada's leading provider of naval in-service support, sustaining more than 100 of the Royal Canadian Navy's ships this includes the refit repair maintenance and training for the navy's arctic and offshore patrol ships and joint support ships it's a one-of-a-kind relational contract known as aegis through aegis talus is helping to create thousands of jobs drive canadian innovation and build a new canadian supply chain together with canadians and for canadians TALIS is helping to ensure the Navy's ships are mission-ready on time, every time. This includes HMCS Harry DeWolf, the captain and crew which TALIS supported on their epic journey around North America in 2021. So, let's cue the music and we'll join with Commander Corey Gleason.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. I'm happy to have Commander Corey Gleason joining us again today, uh, from Halifax. Uh Commander Gleason, thank you so much for for your time
2: again. Well, it's great to be uh talking to you once again. I really enjoyed our time that we had together in uh, Victoria. Um it was a really uh a special time for uh for myself to return to a home port to which I spent close to half my career in uh with a brand new ship and to uh uh, see old friends and meet some new ones. yourself. yourself. Uh,
1: well, thank you very much, Commander. It was uh, it was awesome to be aboard an absolutely beautiful ship, uh, and that midpoint of you arriving at, uh, at Canadian Forces Base Squamish, um, it served as a maintenance and rest period for HMCS heritage. uh So you had just gone through the Northwest Passage, followed the Franklin Expedition, and come down the west coast of Canada, so aside from some
2: well-deserved rest, you guys were going through some maintenance, but how much did the ship actually need? So, the reason why we went to, well, one of the many reasons why we went to Esquimalt was to introduce the ship to the maritime forces Pacific. Um, that wasn't just to, you know, walk the ship and go on tours and things like that. Um, that was to introduce it to the fleet maintenance facility there, as well as Talus, who is the uh, prime contractor for the maintenance of the ship. And while we were there, Talus and, uh, FMF Cape Britain had the opportunity to come on board the ship, tour the ship, uh, get introduced to all the different systems on board the ship. And to really establish a relationship between themselves, between Talus and FMF, and kind of figure out how they're going to work together, because that's really unique—that we have um, uh, a contracted company working alongside our own fleet maintenance facilities—and uh, uh, it was just really breaking ground uh, in establishing relationships and uh, and discovering, you know, um, where one organization commits and where the other one comes in to support, or vice versa. Um, and so we did a lot of that. There's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of conversations, and there was a lot of general maintenance on board the ship, like changing filters out and taking systems apart and getting a look inside of them, uh, to opening up cabinets, and and just you know really becoming aware of the ship itself. And there was subcontractors involved in that too, uh, local subcontractors who had never seen the ship before. So those folks had to come on board and uh, get the opportunity to uh, to take a look at what they've. You know, they signed contracts to commit that they were going to do maintenance. And uh, we you have to get these folks on board so they can have a look at what they've committed to, to make sure that they haven't uh, over committed themselves to doing something that they maybe couldn't do. And the other unique thing about the ship is it's a high voltage ship. And that's really quite new to the Navy and to some maritime industry. Um, and high voltage is a uh, is something that just, it's nothing to be afraid of, but it's just something that needs to be managed a little bit differently, particularly when you're operating on the systems. Um, high voltage is, um, is something that you can turn off a system, but power will be resident in that system, or what we call a decay period, where the systems will, uh, actually discharge the, the electricity over, over a period of time. And that can take up to 15 minutes. So that, that kind of stuff is something really quite, uh, quite new that uh, we, we need to sit down with our folks, provide some training to them, uh, and then to allow them to, uh, to observe how we actually tag out the systems and uh, you know then observe the decay period. So a lot of that work was, um, uh, was being done well. Uh, my crew was, uh, you know, some of them were going back home to Halifax. Some of them were visiting family and friends locally. Um, and some of them were discovering Vancouver for the first time in Vancouver Island. I mean, a beautiful place to go, right? I mean, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, the, these were East Coast sailors that uh, wouldn't generally have that privilege to come out to the West Coast uh, anytime in their career if it weren't for this opportunity. And uh, I can tell you, they really capitalized on it and they really enjoyed their time there. And they all have terrific stories to tell about just visiting either locally or running up to Tofino and going camping or uh, going right back to Vancouver. Um, and, uh, and, you know, one of the, one of the nicer stories that, 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 that even surprised me was when we pulled into Vancouver and went alongside Burrard Pier, uh, my deck officer's mom was waiting for him on the jetty. And um, we had some media and some other folks on the jetty that uh, I had been sitting on the flight deck waiting for the brow to open to cross the brow. And, um, my admiral from the West coast, uh, rear admiral Angus top, was standing beside me and he said, just, w- just wait for a second. To, uh, don't go across the brow just yet. We're going to let the deck officer go first. And I looked at him and the deck officer is a junior officer, right? Yeah. I said, what, why would we do that? And said, sir, you've you got to go across the brow. we got to get you down to see the media. He goes, no, no, his mom's on the jetty. <laughs> <laughs> they, went, awesome. they, went, they went across the brow and it was awesome. They went yeah. across the brow and he hugged his mom and the media were there taking pictures and, uh, um, and uh, they even interviewed her and asked her, you know, what's it like to have a, uh, an officer for a sailor in a ship and things like that. So it was all—it was all very good, and uh, you know. It was almost like a homecoming for for us in, in different ways, um, and of course, an, an opportunity for great adventure on the western province, in the western part of Canada. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, I think that's so sweet. And, and you know, from a personal perspective, it was wonderful to see the ship pull into port in Victoria. And the neat thing about it was. Compared to other navy ships, uh, what I observed as you guys were pulling in was how maneuverable the ship was. Obviously, there were tugs to support, but Harry Wolf just seemed to slide right into its mooring point.
2: Yeah, it really is quite a maneuverable ship, and the uh, you know uh, the, the tugs. Um, uh, I I always bury up tugs when they're available because it just makes good business sense to do so. Um there's no reason to turn a tug away if uh, if there's one available and it's standing by to assist. Um often the tugs are being paid anyway, so you might as well employ them uh right. to some degree. Right. And uh the ship is fitted with um with a big bow thruster up forward. It's got two propellers aft with two big rudders aft that you can actually sink or unsink the rudders and actually have them work independently. So it's almost like having two outboard motors on the after part of the ship and then having a uh, a motor up forward that goes athwart ships so that goes left and right that can maneuver the bow around. So it really um it really it could be really quite complicated mind you i mean if you're if you're doing all these different things, you need to really kind of understand what you're doing and understand laminar flow and how water moves around the hull of the ship and things like that, and of course, you have wind and currents and these other things that um that I personally like to use to assist me to bring the ship alongside. I'd rather use the environments to kind of you know assist me to to uh to set myself either onto the jetty. Or to cushion myself from a from from a fast approach onto the jetty, I mean, go a little bit faster, but use the wind to kind of help me slow it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, and the ship is really lends itself to that kind of thing because, you, as you noticed, it was really quite a tall ship. So it has a great what we refer to as a sail um, on it, and it has a sail effect from the winds and things like that. And it can be really quite significant, and even in the slightest bit of winds, if you uh, if you're not cognizant, because you don't know what you're doing. Right.
1: Right. Uh, very interesting. And so
2: being in Victoria and having this
1: rest to maintenance this period, um, you know, you had just gone through the Northwest Passage. You had gone through ice. Um, how did the ship fare? And did you actually, in fact, require much maintenance before setting off? Because as you departed, your next stop was San Diego. Um, did that require any type of adjustment to the ship? Because you're still in the Pacific, but you're heading south and, and going into waters with different temperatures.
2: Yeah, really, it's um I mean, so this is a really unique Canadian design. Uh our our allies and uh and other countries around the world are using um offshore patrol vessels as uh, vessels in their navies and coast guards um uh as a scalable force. Um they have major combatants, then they have offshore patrol vessels, they have auxiliary vessels that are tankers and oilers and things like that, and they have submarines and, and really kind of generate a, a scalable force. I mean, Canada's domestic waterways are really quite unique and challenging. Um, You have the East Coast that uh, can be comparable to most countries, and you have the West Coast, again, that can be comparable to most countries um, south of 60. But then we've got all that stuff north of 60 that changes everything. And Canada's Navy, uh, right up until this class of ship was introduced, really couldn't operate up north for any significant amount of time. What I mean by that is that uh, uh, they, they could operate up north for probably close to about three weeks out of a year. Uh, They couldn't go very far because the ice um, uh, would begin to develop and force the the Navy ships out because they weren't designed with ice-strengthened hulls. Mm -hmm. Um, They are ice-strengthened to some degree, all of them, but they're not ice-strengthened to the capacity to literally go out and break ice in, in a meaningful way. And so that's the Arctic and offshore patrol vessel uniqueness to it. And I, I, you know, we have to be able to operate in the Canadian Navy north um, in domestic Canada and south um, and internationally. And in order to be able to do that, we have to develop a ship that could go up north in the dead of winter. Um, We have to cool our engines inside the ship using external water. What we do is we we suck water in to the ship through a suction system underneath the ship. We cool our engines and that, that water doesn't integrate with any oils or anything like that, but it just gets discharged over as we're cooling the, cooling the systems. In order to do that when you're up north, we have to introduce a heating system that would actually heat that freezing cold water and bring it inside the ship so it didn't sludge up and then ruin and then stop the ability for us to even cool, this, cool the systems at all. And then ultimately, in the inverse of that, we have to be able to go down south and operate in temperatures uh, that are really quite extreme uh, and very hot. Um, our electronic systems inside the ship, our computer systems, they don't like heat. Um, right. yeah. they, they will not function in, in, those, uh, in those environments very well. Um, heat and humidity are a real danger to, uh, to any ship uh, or any electronic devices. Uh, so we have to be able to cool this ship as well in, in a way that, um, that that you know prevents these systems from either slowing down or stopping and not working altogether. So while we were in Esquimalt, we uh, spent a lot of time tuning the ship for warm weather. And what that meant was um, our focus moved away from the winterization equipment that we have on board the ship. We started turning those systems off, and we started adjusting the heating and uh, ventilation system, the HVAC system inside the ship, so it would cool the ship pretty dramatically. And um, it is, (laughs) it it does get very cold uh, inside the ship. And, uh, uh, you know, I I dare say when we were down close to the equator, that's, you know, when we were on the bridge operating, from time to time, the sailors were going outside to warm up a little bit because it was so cold inside the bridge and the the system was so efficient. That's not to say that, uh, you know, there's a balancing that has to happen throughout the ship. So that's not the same. We always get it perfect. Um, there are some areas that, uh, that are rightfully sold. There's some areas that are colder than others because that's really where you need to focus. But there's some areas in the ship that we haven't really mastered quite yet. There's only there's only a few of them. I can only think of one at the top of my mind right now, and it's, it's close to a passageway. So the way we addressed that was we only allowed sailors to enter and leave the ship uh, through uh, specific doors. Um, to To prevent uh, a lot of heat from coming into the ship and and uh, and heating up the ship and fighting against our efforts to keep the ship cool. Um, and uh, and so the the, the ship that, that's really you know the, the, the uniqueness of this is you have you have a Canadian ship that can operate anywhere in Canada's domestic waters anytime the Canadian government wants it to. But then you also have a Canadian ship that can deploy anywhere in the world that the Canadian government wants it to as well. And I dare say that our Canadian taxpayers would not be too thrilled to find out that they bought a ship, uh, built it um, to go up north, and it couldn't go south. And we tied <laughs> right. it up, tied it up eight months out of every year because it's uh, there's just you know there, there's there's no we we can't do anything else with it. Right. Um right. So um, you know, for your listeners, uh, I would just submit that uh, Canadian taxpayers really got their bang for their buck on this thing. Um, uh, they they really did, and I'm really proud of the ship and the crew and how they were able to. Uh, to master those different domains in those environments, because they're, you know, dramatically different. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, not in my case, I certainly wasn't doing it for the first time, but, uh, for a lot of the people on board the ship, and I would submit, you know, all of them except for me, we're doing it for the first time. Um, right. and to, uh, and, you know, under, under, under some direction, under some leadership, we're able to, uh, um, to really execute, um, both, uh, aspects of this mission, um, in an exceptional way. And, uh, the stories and the feedback and the, uh, the the media interest and coverage that we got throughout uh, the whole of the passage just really speaks for itself. But you know, we worked really, really, really hard to be in a position to execute it in the way that we did. Um, and uh, uh, I, you know, we, we got we got back to uh, Kent or back alongside in Halifax on the sixteenth uh, uh, of December. My crew went on leave, and uh, and they earned it. They really did. That's for sure. Like I followed with keenness of
1: your whole deployment. And, uh, and yeah, you guys don't it out of the park.
2: Yeah, I think we really captured the imaginations of Canadians. Uh, uh, and, you know, the uh, you know, I, I know you want to talk about our drug introduction operations and the work that we did further south. But um, the, the Arctic, I really got the impression that throughout, you know, my years of, of studying and, and mm-hmm. research and, and preparing myself for operating up north, I really get the impression that Canadians really care about the Arctic. That it's really something that they're passionate about, and so it made it maybe easier for the media to cover, and it certainly captured a lot of imagination from folks about the Arctic. Um, and I, I, I dare say, I think that we've kind of made it a little bit smaller by virtue of bringing folks up there and then telling the story from from our boots on the ground uh, up north, and uh, and you know traversing through there with the ship, and then meeting all of these you know terrific people who lived there
1: yeah well i think you certainly made it a smaller country but i think one of the things that certainly helped you is that technology is such that it is that you were able to communicate much yeah. of the way as you were going um, obviously that didn't exist in years past and while we're on that topic how was comms for you as a worship
2: well uh communications were were, were just fine um You know, uh, cell phone service and things like that were uh, things that are of a reality up there now. Uh, If you go to a Hamlet, if you're close to a Hamlet and within cell phone range, you can use your phones. And our sailors certainly did. Uh, Not all of these... um, uh, the service industry are operating up there. Bell is, is uh, predominantly the company that uh, provides services up there. So if you're unfortunate to have a ha- have a local provider uh, and you're up north, you probably couldn't really use your cell phone uh, for cell services, but you can use it for Wi-Fi. The ship has Wi-Fi on board the ship. So all the sailors uh, can stay connected to their family and friends uh, through uh, ship's Wi-Fi. And we have satellite connectivity to uh, support that. Um, and of course, we have our own military satellite connectivity as well. Um, and uh, and then we had a whole bunch of standalone devices that were satellite capable to that satellite phones, computers, uh, uh, laptops that were uh, satellite capable. Um, and so the, there really wasn't a, a lack of ability to communicate. And of course, all the traditional um, HF uh, and UHF radio communications were uh, things that uh, we, the ship has on board the, uh, on board. Uh, and so there there's no there, there's no real limitation. Um, to communications um i think the biggest uh limitation if you were to to put your finger on one would be satellite television uh when you got up uh when you got up north you started to fall outside of the uh satellite uh capabilities and uh um often your you the the actual beam from the satellite was so low because you're so far north maybe your listeners don't really quite understand but um a satellite dish works by line of sight it has to be able to see the satellite and uh the farther north you go the steeper that angle becomes closer to the ground so right. um you know if you're dealing with the one or 2 degree angle from the ship up to the sky all you need is a hill a small little hill or even a car to be standing in your way <laughs> to stop you from being able to uh, to see the satellites uh, so satellite connectivity in that in that sense was was really quite limiting but um but we, uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of entertainment systems on board the ship for the crew. They have a gym on board. The, on board the, There was no lack of uh, of activities or entertainment to, to keep them busy. Besides all the work, I mean, right. there's a lot of work for the sailors to do every day. And I, I can tell you that uh, after three days in a hamlet, they were looking for a bit of a break to uh, put their heads down for two days or so to recover from for the next time that we we're going to go into a hamlet. We got a lot of stuff done.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's awesome, and, and you know, again, we're we're referring to prior to you guys getting to Victoria, and so after you departed
2: Victoria and you headed down, uh, I believe your first stop was San Diego. Yeah, so uh, you know, uh, we left on the twenty second of October, and if your listeners recall, there was a heck of a storm brewing just outside the streets of Juan de Fuca, yeah, and um. Uh, you know, there, there was a bit of fanfare on our departure where, you know, the Admiral was there and there was bands and um, it, it was quite celebratory because uh, we had such an amazing visit there yeah. and such a, a tremendous impact on folks there. Not just uh, not just sailors, but, uh, you know, the local public uh, got the opportunity to come and see the ship in, both in Vancouver and Victoria. Um, and then while we were alongside in Victoria during the work period, um, we would run you know five or six tours a day of large groups of people coming through the ship to uh to discover you know the new and exciting things that the the navy's getting itself into um and so as we were leaving we wanted the opportunity to do some work with HMC as vancouver and a good friend of mine who's the captain there kevin whiteside um uh i wanted to get a picture with with uh with with them in the ship and then uh um, uh, the New Zealand ship Tamana was being refitted in Canada, and so she was at sea with us. And so we wanted to do a bit of a PASSEX with them and get, you know, really capture this historical moment of a, uh, you know, um, uh, t- two ships from either coast, brand new ship and uh, and uh, a ship from New Zealand operating off the uh, Victoria waterfront um, in company, um, and uh, really kind of uh, capture that moment. Uh, but at the same time. My meteorologist on board was really getting concerned about that low pressure system that was building, yeah. and um we had been looking at it a couple of days in advance and I, I had a weather avoidance plan uh that called for some you know pretty fast speeds uh of a lot of full power movements trying to get south of it and stay stay away from it because you know the low pressure system becomes is a is a small small system that grows and grows and grows and expands and it was um <laughs> it was it was described to uh, us as the deepest low ever <laughs> so it was it was a, it was a it was a terrible day to leave
1: <laughs> i i can attest to that because i was i was on the coast watching you guys and i'm like oh, this is a, you know what a shame that the, that the weather took such a turn
2: yeah well so so there is that there is that low um and uh, uh so we got the pictures in that we needed to get in uh, we had some aircraft that were supposed to come out to support us to get the pictures taken. Um, they they couldn't get out for uh, one reason or another. Uh, so we ended up using our own unmanned aerial vehicle that we have. It's a fixed wing aircraft that uh, we just launched from the bridge wing. And we put that thing up in the air and uh, got, got a bunch of pictures taken. And then we turned tail and and just uh, did best, what we refer to as best on four. I have four motor uh, diesel generators um, that uh, uh, I can operate the ship on one. Um, okay. And if I'm only operating on one motor diesel generator, I can go from Halifax to Victoria on one tank of gas through the Northwest Passage. So it's a very capable vessel. But if I've got all four MDGs running, I'm burning four times that much gas. Right, um, right. So we put the pedal to the metal, uh, you know, ran out there. Uh, as soon as I uh, was able to turn left and get, get to keep that, uh, that storm on my quarter, I did. Um, it didn't come without a cost. Uh, you know, there, throughout a couple of days, you're, you're running, you're running at high speed in bad weather. That's, uh, that, that's, that's not, that's the, the crew takes it. I mean, it's not a comfortable place to be, right? right? But it was necessary because it could have been even worse. And I had some, what we've referred to as force generation, but I had some training work that, uh, that, that I had to do in preparation for the next mission. And I had some sea trainers on board that were going to assist me to do that. Um, and one one of the you know the, the most important things I needed to do was qualify my demolitions team. Um, uh, so if we encountered uh, drug runners and uh, uh, we had to uh, uh, take them as United States Coast Guard detainees, if that was going to occur, um, their vessels would have been navigational hazards, and that I would I would need to have been instructed to dispose of them or do something with them. And so I needed I needed some capabilities that I didn't that I did I didn't necessarily completely possess at the point. I had all the practical training, I had all the academic training, but I just needed that last check in the box. It was like the test or the exam, if you will, where we have a a, a certified instructor watches our team. Uh, go through the whole process of uh, dealing with the the environments and understanding the burn rate for the fuses and things like that and then placing charges onto a uh, target of some sort and then literally blowing it up. Um, And we needed to do that at some point. I needed to stop, but I couldn't stop on that low-pressure system to do that. So I had to run south. And, um, uh, you know, uh, when when it comes to weather, uh, throughout my whole tenure as as the captain of Harry DeWolf, um I've always been uh I'll I'll say lucky. Um uh you know, there's a bit of science that you throw at it, but then you also throw a bit of luck in there to, to hope that's uh that that you're that you're guessing right because weather is weather, right? I mean you right. you, yeah. you, you, you there there is a certain degree of crystal balling it. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I, I've always been lucky to find myself in between two lows, uh and not comfortable, but you know, it better better off than being in the low right. uh, in exactly. this in this case in this case as i was running from it i kept it to my quarter and as soon as i got southbound to uh santa barbara Strait, uh just north of uh, san diego i took a quick left and took cover and that low pressure system just blew right past me and uh, i was in a very comfortable place to uh to be and it was at the same time that's uh, you know, when I, when I turned left into the Santa Barbara Strait uh, or the Santa Barbara Channel, that is, that's a proper term, um, President Biden had just given the thumbs up for all of these shipping uh, uh, contain, containerized ships to deliver their products uh, to United States because of the COVID crisis. And so as I turned left into the channel, uh, we found ourselves in or amongst some hundred or two hundred uh vessels uh all at anchor waiting for their turn to get into uh to discharge their cargo and then carry on and get on get you on know, with the business of the world uh moving uh moving things around and um yeah it was just uh we we just got really 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 quite uh i would not say lucky because that's not true there was there's always a plan and there's always a bit of science that we threw through at it and and the plan worked i'll say that um and so we got we so we got our training in which was good um we we lost some opportunity, but we made it up. when we got closer to San Diego. What was it like
1: pulling into San Diego? Because that's you know a major U.S. naval base. And tell me, where exactly did you guys pick up the U.S. Coast Guard Law Enforcement Detachment?
2: Was that yeah. in San Diego? That was in San Diego. So um, going into San Diego for me, um, as a captain of you know the first Arctic offshore patrol vessel. Uh, every time it's a big deal, right? You're rolling right. into some place for the first time. And right. San Diego is a pretty special place for me because I've been there so many times on other warships throughout my career. And uh, and it's a great, great port visit for the sailors. Um, it is a real sailor's town where there's lots of things to do, great restaurants, uh, great sites. The San Diego Zoo is just such an amazing place to visit. Um, and, uh, uh, and my sailors capitalized on, on all of that stuff. Uh, and of course, we had... The consul General uh, come and visit with some of his staff um, on board the ship, um, made some presentations. Um, you know, always on the on the queue for uh, keeping up the business, the business end of what the Canadian Navy does. There's always a, some sort of official event uh, that either we support just by virtue of being there. And I support a senior uh, consul general or or senator or something. Um, or, uh, I'm hosting myself, uh, to, to have other commanding officers from, uh, other navies coming on board the ship. These things are always going on. Um, and there's always that, uh, that, 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 that part of the business of the Navy that your, your listeners might be just learning this today that, uh, you know, we're ambassadors to Canada when we go, when we go to these different places. And uh, our sailors uh, are are extraordinarily effective at that in communicating the importance of the Navy, communicating the importance of the work. And in this case, communicating the terrific ship that they were on and their experiences, which, uh, you know, frankly, made it really quite easy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was a really easy thing to talk about. And there was a lot of people that were really quite interested. Like I said, when we got into um, uh, Victoria, there was a long list of people that wanted to get on board the ship. And San Diego was no different. The sailors were really intrigued fascinated by um this new concept this new ship um they all wanted to get on board for tours um and they did we did everything we could to uh support them and walk and boat in small groups because of covid mind you but uh we did everything we could to um to really kind of show off the ship uh but of course the other part of that was introducing the united states coast guard lead to the ship it would have been the first time that lead would have seen it and uh You know, so we brought them on board the ship on the first day and we were alongside for four days. Uh, And so the first day they came on board and then then there was a lot of coming back and forth with some of their kit and their munitions and their weapons and things like that. Um, And a lot of briefs uh, talking about the capabilities of the ship first. Uh, Because it's a high voltage ship, we have to provide some uh, some general training for them to uh, to train them on how to remain safe on board the ship or places you shouldn't go without a supervisor. Uh, And we introduced them to some of our new boats, which is really quite exciting uh, because uh, we have these new fast uh, patrol uh, craft on board these ships that are new, not just to the ship, but to the Navy that have a weapon system fitted to the front end of it. And it's referred to as an MRRB, a multi-role rescue boat. And um, the multi-role rescue boat has a full communication suite on it. It has a full radar suite, navigation suite on it. And it has the capability to go away from the ship up to 150 to 200 miles, wow. meaning that it's a real, real quite a range. And uh, something that we would never do uh, in, the, in my personal past, um, a captain would never, ever allow his small boat or her small boat to go away from the ship outside of line of sight. Right. And somebody had better keep their eye on it. And, right. You know, I, I recall uh, you know literally hundreds of times my captain would be would be on the bridge and somebody was the captain was saying, "Does somebody have their eye on that boat? Where's that boat? I can't see the boat." Somebody, you know, and really quite concerned for the safety of the boat because uh, it didn't have the radar systems and those types of things on board. Right. Now with today's technology and installing that kind of stuff onto these boats, um, the concern for the boat insofar as range is far less for the captain. And, uh, you know, I, I felt quite comfortable, uh, and we did, uh, deploying it at night over the horizon to uh, to intercept the target and knowing full well that uh, that they would know where the, we were the whole time and I would know where they were the whole time.
1: And if you've gone beyond the horizon, then I would imagine now you're using uh, satellite
2: communication to speak with them, Yes, Is, yes, satellite. So it's really about two or three different things. So we have uh, AIS. Um, which is uh, um, which is a capability to, that just shows you can you can get these things these apps on your phones these days and you can follow Harry the wolf around uh, the the Arctic on uh, on your phone through AIS right um, right and uh, and that's satellite that's radio it's a myriad of different ways of communicating it's a ship's position or a small small boat's position um, uh, the the boat operators themselves used VHF radio handheld VHF uh, radios. Uh, they were equipped with satellite uh, telephones if they needed it, um, but the LEADET uh, operators had satellite packs on them. So the, uh, the the United States Coast Guard operators had earpieces um, and communications packs that uh, supported satellite communications, and they were really quite good. Um, and they talked to their lead on board of the ship from the bridge with me standing beside them so they could provide updates. And there's always, you know, the constant communications. And while that, you know, those conversations are taking place between the boat and the bridge, we have people closed up in my multi-purpose operation space that are actually communicating ashore, giving a headquarters a play by play on what's going on uh, on the ground and telling them, you know, this is this is what stage we're at with the targets. Uh, This is whether we found contraband or we haven't found contraband um and uh and you know there's some other decision points that that had to be made at different points and some of them weren't mine to make and some of them were mine to make and uh by notwithstanding that, I always communicated my intents uh to to the leadership back home, yeah, that's super cool, so this law enforcement
1: detachment that that came aboard uh, how many people did that consist of, and what feedback did you get from them um you know we haven't even talked about some of the introductions that you guys did, but um what feedback did you get from them in comparison to perhaps what some of them might have done on our Kingston class, Maritime Coastal Defense Vessels?
2: Yeah, so the um the the first bit uh on the introduction of the platform, there's a lot of excitement. And uh, you know, so the the actual crew that were gonna sail with us were on board, but so too were their leadership. So they're the commanding officer, their executive officers, and some of the other staff officers. And um, they were really quite excited about getting the opportunity to work from a platform like this because it's, it's really, I mean, it really lends itself to this kind of work. The capabilities of the ship are, are really kind of lends itself to this kind of work and a whole bunch of other things, support the science. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the other capabilities of the ship. And this is just one unique, small-esque constabulary work that we do. But it's not throwing... Everything, including the kitchen sink, at the problem, right? What I mean by that is we're not taking a big major combatant and putting, uh, you know, six to ten lead at staff on board the ship to chase drug runners around. We're keeping the major combatant for what it's purposely designed to do, right? right. To go right. and do major, major warfare-related activities or to be in a position to at least uh, prevent those activities from occurring. Um, right. and, and then you've got a, uh, something in the middle, which is a, an AOPV, an Arctic Offshore Patrol vessel that can go and do this small esque constabulary work that's still incredibly important to, uh, to Canada and to our allies. But, uh, we're not throwing everything that we've got at the problem. We're, we're putting the right thing on, on the problem. We didn't have that in the past, right? We didn't have that kind of capability. So we were sending frigates down to do that kind of work uh, because we have a commitment to support our allies. And right. in, in doing so, we, we've got to work with what we've got. And, um, uh, and so we, we were sending it. As a matter of fact, I did my first Operation Carib on the West Coast on board HMCS Ottawa as the executive officer. And so that was a major combatant chasing drug runners around. That's um, a missile carrier, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't yeah. make sense. It shouldn't be logical to to, to everybody that you would do. It's like driving tanks down the city street and chasing a uh, chasing a bank robber, right? right. I and mean, you, you wouldn't do that, um, right. And so, so having an AOTV and having an Arctic offshore patrol vessel or the class at your fingertips and at your disposal will be really throwing that uh, throwing those those ships at that, that kind of work.
0: Hey, folks. Here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing about today speaks about developing high-end capabilities. Such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best prepared that they can be. Cubic is the market leader in training operators to be proficient in the application of their platforms for their warfighting mission. From well-integrated instrumentation systems to game-based learning, to multi domain, blended, live, virtual, and constructive training environments, Cubic remains the United States, Allied, and Coalition partner of choice to deliver truth in training. Cubic's Total Learning Platform is a maritime, game based learning platform that has proven to reduce the time to train watch standards on US LCS combatants by 90%, and Cubic's blended Live, virtual, and constructive open standards based solution enables live and virtual ships and aircraft to train together in a common, secure, synthetic environment. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic delivers real results. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast, and we thank them for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guest today. To learn more about Cubic, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat.
2: To so your question about United States Coast Guard, they, they love the ship. They're really quite excited about it. Um, I mean, the conditions on board the ship are not austere, right? I mean, it's a very comfortable ship to be on. Uh, you know, the the officer in charge of the of the leadette that fell under my command, of course, um, she was put in the senior officer's cabin on board the ship, which is a, a big deal for a lieutenant. Right, yeah, it's a right. junior <laughs> officer being put in a senior officer's cabin, and uh, and uh, you know being um, uh, you know just really kind of stepping up to to the role of uh, and how important that that role was in in, in her team and her her team. Uh, I mean, I have this uh, this this area of the ship. It's called the Embark Forces Mess. That's specifically designed to support Embarked forces. Um, everything is co-located. Their 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 magazines. Their their weapon storage areas where they put all their extra gear, it's all co-located in one place for them. And when when they get to a point that they're going to deploy, we have a, a briefing room that's right on the same level in the same vicinity as the boat decks. So you can envision um, six to eight people armed, sitting in a theater-type construct, having um, a video display or some sort of media display in front of them, Having a leader telling them what the threat is, what the mission is, well, you know, what what do we expect to encounter, and briefing them in, and then ultimately deploying from that space, taking five steps away from that space, and jumping in the boats and deploying and going. And um, what really made that whole kind of thing really quite unique is that we. We develop these standing operating procedures when we're conducting uh, drug interdiction operations or anything uh, or any type of activity we're going to do. We we kind of ski the slope before we actually jump in the set of skis and go down the hill. So mentally, we go through this process. How are we going to do this? Right. Um, and so and then we practice it a couple of times before we actually go and do it. And so we develop these phases of, of these uh, of, of, you know, of an action. So phase one, we're going to do this. Phase two, we're going to do this. Phase three, we're going to do this. Um, And uh, because of how the ship is designed, I can, uh, you know, in, in other ships, I've seen us go from phase one to phase three, and it takes us some time to get there. It's a bit clunky and awkward because we're not really quite designed to do that. But on an AOPV, it's specifically designed to do that. So I was jumping from phase one to phase three, uh, I was, you know, we, we were briefing and people were in the boats less than five minutes and deploying awesome. over the horizon. That's yeah. awesome. Um, yeah. and it was really awesome to, to, to be able to do that. And to, uh, and we, we've really found a bunch of efficiencies in our planning as well to, to realize that we cut some more things out, out of our steps to uh, get ourselves to a point that we were really slick out at sea that uh, you know, we got a target. we, we were pretty confident with the targets doing. Um, and we're going to intercept and, uh, um, then we provide the, the briefing, get everybody, get everybody right in, and then they, 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 they would shoot off and go. And, uh, you know, within a, within a few minutes, um, they, be they'd be either just talking to some, some nice fishermen who are just doing some fishing and, uh, or they're, they're intercepting some drug smugglers.
1: Yeah. Well, and so now this law enforcement detachment, they would get on board the fast boats that you mentioned that you're carrying on board HM,
2: the yeah. CSR yeah, they're and- our own boats, right? I think you're getting at so what's the construct of the team, what does that look like? So um, uh, I have um, I, I have a series of boat drivers, we call them boats coxes, uh, and they're all trained to operate the vessels. Um, and then uh, we have an operator, uh, when we don't have a gun mount on board, um, we just refer to that person as a bowsman. When we do have a gun mount on board, we refer to him as a gunner. So we'll deploy two boats at the same time uh two of our sailors from our ship and three leadets from our ship. So a group of five on each boat. And those people change out based on fatigue and based on uh you know the operation and things like that. But uh, we would we would run those people through. Um and, and of course training. Uh the C six rifled mounts is quite a unique weapon to the Navy. So I think we trained about twelve people on the weapon. So we didn't we, we only had a few people to choose from to put on the boat. So if they were standing watches we couldn't rely on them to uh, to go into a boat, um, and we had to manage their work rest cycle to make sure that uh, we got the right person in the boat that could be on the boat for a while. Because sometimes the operation took, um, you know, anywhere up to five to six hours uh, in a small boat. That's that's pretty exhausting for anyone. Yeah. yeah, it
1: would be. Um, there were some complexities of getting the gun on those boats, because to my knowledge, this is the first time that, that the Canadian Navy has done that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's the first time the Canadian Navy's. Uh, I mean, we've always had people with weapons inside a boat, right? Right. So right. whether we had a small handheld weapon or a rifle, uh, we th- those things are are pretty common to the Canadian Navy. Well, what's really quite unique is having a, a a weapon that's mounted on the boat. That's not just one that you would hold up against your chest and shoot. I mean, it's um, it's a machine gun. Right. It's, uh, right. you know, you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger coming up with his rifles and you, you would never see that kind of thing happen. Right. It's impossible to do. But uh, <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, we're talking about major weapons, uh, major small arms on, on a boat. Yeah. And so with that comes doctrine and understanding of how to use the weapon um, and an understanding of when you can actually employ the weapon uh, mm-hmm. and when you're going to crew the weapon. Because, I mean, the, the boats can run up to almost 40 knots. That's really, really fast on the water. If you're running 40 knots in open ocean, you are really, really running fast. In open ocean, that means that you need to be sitting down and holding on to something. Right. Uh, you can't be standing up forward, uh, holding on to that weapon, thinking right. that uh, you're going to deploy it. Because, first of all, you'll probably get thrown right out of the boat. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> if you do try to deploy the weapon, what I mean by deploying the weapon is shoot the weapon. You've got no chance for accuracy whatsoever. Right. Uh, and a captain would not appreciate a sailor. Shooting a weapon without any confidence and accuracy—that—that right. um, right. that is not something that we want to see see happen. We don't—we don't do things like that willy nilly. We—if we, we—we're if going to engage a weapon, we do it with a certain degree of confidence that we're going to actually hit the target that we're shooting at, and—and uh, and not necessarily, um, you know, ordinarily any any target firing that uh, that you would hear would be disabling fire, where we would just stop the runner, and stopping the runner would mean to do something to their engines. To stop them from being able to run, and that would mean either shoot out, the, shoot them out, or get close enough that you could reach in to the boat and maybe pull out a um, uh, fuel uh, hose out of the out of the motor or something like that. Um, but certainly, you wouldn't want to discharge a weapon and not know where that round's going to fall. Right. Right. So we did a lot of work with it, and uh, um, you know, uh, we we learned a lot about the about the weapon. Um, we learned a lot of things not to do with the weapon. Um, uh, we learned how effective the weapon can really be. Uh, the original mount that was given to us had to be adjusted. It was a little bit too high for our operators to operate from. So we, so we made some changes to it, some design changes to it on the fly when we are out at sea. And then we practiced uh, a whole bunch of different scenarios to kind of figure out when's the best time to tell that person to, to get up on the weapon. And you can't rely on the captain once these boats are gone over their eyes. And you can't rely on me to tell them when, when when to get up on the mountain, right? They have to know. They have to intuitively know. So we have to provide some training and develop some doctrine to help them understand when's the appropriate time to be on that mountain, when's the appropriate time not to be on that mountain. And, uh, and how do they make that adjustment? Right. So if uh, the, we had a small boat that was uh, the, the two small boats coming up on um, conducting an approach off, we refer to it as, um, approaching onto uh, a vessel, if the vessel wasn't in, 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 you know, in chase or something like that or just, just, you know, just stopped, our team would proceed at a slower pace onto the vessel, not to alarm them. Our personnel would be uh, on the weapons, up forward, and our other, the, the lead at crew would be um, standing by, showing their ability, uh, but not coming up on aim on people, but just showing that they have weapons and things like that, um, and then conduct their interrogation and look, you know, talk to them about what, what country you're from, what flag you're flying and uh, these types of things that you do at sea.
1: Right on. And is it a function of the size of those fast boats that perhaps precludes
2: a gyro-stabilized weapon? Like, is that in the realm of the possible? I think it is. Uh, I, it seems pretty expensive thing to do for what we're going to use it for. Um, you know, when you start getting to gyro-stabilized weapons, like we have on board the ship, um, you know that that that's that that's a pretty uh unique specific capability you know we probably could get there at some point uh but uh, you know baby steps we, we've only just uh, introduced these things uh, into our um, into our doctrine now um and uh, I don't think I've encountered a small boat when i think even in the united States uh, a small patrol boat uh, that had a gyro stabilized uh, weapon on board yet um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure that the, you know, the cost of putting something like that on board a small boat. I don't think you would reap the benefit from something like that. I think it'd be a little bit too expensive and um, very specific thing to do, and you'd have to have a really good reason to want to do it. Um, I mean, at the very, at the very least, uh, when you see uh, an MRB uh, from Harry to Wolf um, with a weapon mounted up forward. Um, That's a heck of a deterrent. And so if you're using these small boats for force protection, for instance, uh, force protection isn't about engaging a target. Force protection is about preventing a target from engaging you, Uh, meaning you show presence, right? Right. Presence is everything. When you show presence and capability, uh, somebody that wants to do harm probably going to look the other way and not look at you, particularly when they see all that capability right there. Right. So they'll probably look for an easier target to uh, to to go after rather than to chase after you, and that's really what this is. It's a it's an incredible deterrent, and it's incredible. Um, it's an incredible equalizer for for a conversation to occur. Um, if you're a drug smuggler and you see a small boat coming up, and you see a couple very professional-looking sailors that are dressed fully equipped and you have a weapon up forward, they're probably going to heave to and just put their hands up. I mean, at the end of the day, where are they going to run? They're in the middle of the desert surrounded right. by water that they can't drink. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where are you going to go?
1: Where are you going to go? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it, it, so speaking of, um, HMCS Harry Wolf conducted two major drug seizures during this off portion of your deployment. Uh, tell me about those because that must have been pretty exciting.
2: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the, the first one was probably the nail biter uh, for, for me personally. Uh, Because there's a whole series of different things that were occurring all at the same time that, um, uh, you know, uh, the fog of war, as it were, was uh, really presented there. We've got a whole bunch of intelligence to tell us that there was a target that was in a specific area Um, and pretty hard to find uh, just looking around with binoculars and kind of driving around in the ocean looking for a small contact. Um, and we had aircraft that were supporting us, fixed-wing aircraft that were supporting us. And they, that makes it really quite easy when you have a fixed-wing aircraft in the air because they're really quite capable of looking down at a swath of water, or really triangulating on something really quickly. But when you're down low on the water, that makes it really quite challenging to see anything. There was a low pressure system in the area. And it was another one. And it was uh rear in its ugly head, um, into hurricane force winds and he even got a name which made it even more complicated for me Terry and uh, Terry was really quite uh, um, menacing and so now I've got to put small boats in the water intercept a target that is going to be quite challenging for me to do with Terry and because of the low pressure system the aircraft can't fly now so they got me to a place where I was somewhere around, let would say about 100 miles, square miles of where this contact is supposed to be. But then I still got to figure out where it is in that, in that huge body of water. Right. right. And, um, you know, I've got some pretty good radars. I've got uh, a Sigma-6 ice radar, which is a fascinating radar that, you know, developed some terrific technology that I used up north to uh, find uh, small pieces of ice and to avoid them if I needed to. And so I was using that to assist us in determining where this target was. Cool. And um, we encountered a vessel, uh, and we deployed our team onto the vessel. And for the life of me, uh, I don't know what it was doing out there. But uh, anyway, they declared SOLAS, Safety of Life at Sea. Okay. So now I'm on a rescue mission, but I still haven't found my drug runners. Right. And I've got these boats in the water. So they requested assistance. Uh, so what, what it meant was they had to abandon their boat. And it was just an open, big fishing boat, open boat, but it was just loaded full of fuel. But they didn't have any navigation equipment. Um, and they were really concerned about that storm. And they thought they were going to die. So we were like, okay, so now we've got uh, rescuees on board the ship. Uh, so we have to bring these people on board. So concurrent to a rescue mission now, uh, which is really my job as, as, as it's outside the realm of Harry of the at team, it's right. it's on it's in my my backyard. Um, uh, I'm focused on that, but I'm also focused on where are these drug runners? We right. still have to find these people, right? Right. And so, uh, you know, f- well, four hours after getting these folks on board, continuing along with our search for the uh, for the drug runners, um, we had our fixed wing UAV up in the air, um, the oh. un- unmanned aerial vehicle that we talked about earlier that we're using, that we're using for some trying to get that thing to determine where the vicinity of the of the vessels were but that that vessel was found by my uav and i had to recover that thing because of the poor weather so right. i've got the uav floating in the water i've got rescuees that need to be recovered from a boat i've got terry charging at me and i still have those drug runners out there someplace they're probably going to lose their lives too so i'm really concerned about that too i mean uh you know they, they might be drug runners but we we don't want to see them die right <laughs> right right and, yeah. uh, and, and so so we we uh, I had to recover the UAV we got that on board, recovered mm-hmm. the rescuees, got them looked at through our ship's position on board the ship, and ran them through sick Bay and then got them comfortable and uh, my team were were remained dedicated the team, the crews the, the they have watch changes, but they they were just so engaged in it that they didn't want to leave the bridge. so I had people that were staying behind that were looking. I had um, my 25 millimeter gun has an EOIR camera on it. That's really quite useful. And uh, we found that target with the EOIR camera. And, and you could see the people in the boat looking at us through their own night vision goggles. Oh, no and, kidding. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they would go down in a wave and then they'd come up and, all, all, and our EOIR camera was picking up their night vision goggles because they give off a light. Right, right, and um, and you could just see these two beady eyes come up and uh, and take a look <laughs> at us, and then go back down into the wave, and then come up, and go back down into the wave, and um, my, one of my sailors said, "Sir, I got them right here." So, we uh, we redeployed our boats uh, and went chasing after them, and uh, uh, and they had very little fuel left; they were in real trouble, um, and uh, they had a lot of drugs on board. Um, but what was really quite neat about that was that you know as they were coming up and coming down i think they were hoping that we weren't going to see them because we had already driven past them once and we missed them okay um and so but we intercepted the other guy right Um, and so we thought that was our target found out later it wasn't sure and so when we put our boats in the water um i had the bow pointed towards the the vessel of interest and i turned my bow in such a way that they couldn't see the people on my starboard waist deck Putting the boat in the water, so they couldn't, so they wouldn't make a run for it, because so I didn't want mm-hmm. to have them make a run for it in this terrible weather. Right. So right. We, we put the boat in the water, and I had that boat kind of stay behind until I could use my bow thruster to pull my bow over to the other side and show them my starboard side. Now and put the other boat in the water, and so oh, while I was okay. pointing the other boat, um, the team came up onto the uh, onto the target with all their lights out. Um, and uh, as soon as they got close enough they turned on all of the lights on our small boat and we have big uh, strobe uh, blue strobe lights government strobe lights and uh and search lights, and it just lit up the the horizon and uh and you know it was a really dramatic thing to see on the water and uh all you saw was uh, three people putting their hands up really quickly and just saying and and so and they, they, got they, us. they it, was funny, it was funny to see see them give up because you know ordinarily there's a bit of an interrogation process right sure there's a a point in time where you know where where are you going what are you doing but they just gave up and uh um and of course there was just packages and packages and packages of cocaine the weather was rough uh the uh uh the people in the boat were getting seasick um the packages like a package weighs it's a big awkward thing it weighs about 80 pounds okay now you can appreciate being in a small boat Bouncing around all over the place, uh, trying to pick up eighty pounds from one small boat, move it over to another small boat, and then bring it on board uh, the ship, oh, uh, yeah. and doing that doing that like ninety times. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a just a ridiculous amount of work. And um, uh, the we had to switch sailors out after a while because it was just too much for them. Yeah. At one point, uh, I I decided that because uh, the sun the, the sun had set, it was getting dark. I decided I was gonna put a, a marker in the boat we'll refer to as um as a radar marker and uh I put it inside the boat and just let the boat sit and drift and we stayed in its vicinity. I could track it by my radar and brought everybody back on board to recover uh uh Terry blew past us overnight and then we went back and uh finished our work with the um with with the with the boat and uh, disposed of it as instructed by the united States coast Guard so well and so
1: now you have these three
2: detainees or, or the law enforcement detachment has these three detainees or yeah or what what did happen to So the United States Coast Guard uh, they're United States Coast Guard detainees they're not Harry the Wolf or so the Canadian right. detainees belongs right. the United States Coast Guard we just provide the platform to them right. um, and uh, so what happens is uh, as soon as uh, as soon as we get uh, these types of drugs or these types of people on board the ship, um, my orders are, to disembark them to a United States uh, ship or to uh, a country that works with the United States under the op Crib banner. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, and in, in this case, we were operating south with United States Coast Guard ships for a while. And so uh, one, of the, one of the ships that uh, is kind of their flagship for this type of work, the uh, Hamilton, uh, came to Harry the wolf uh to uh, uh, to take uh, both uh, all the drugs and the detainees and then of course it was my job to bring the rescuees back to their home country, which was mexico okay. um, so, so we, we brought uh, so we, we disembarked uh, the detainees and the drugs and we went to uh, Mexico and uh, I went alongside and uh disembarked uh, the three rescuees to the authorities in Mexico. Yeah, they're really what quite a, grateful to make it safe.
1: No kidding! What a story! That is awesome. Uh, what was the amount
2: of drugs that was recovered? I want to say it's somewhere around eighteen hundred pounds or something like that. It's just a lot. It's a yeah. l- like a like a ridiculous amount, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, it's 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 like they they really they really fill those boats. I mean, they're big boats to begin with. I mean, okay. they're, they're not like little um, pleasure craft or anything like that. They're big boats that have big heavy hundred and twenty horsepower motors They put four of them on the back of these boats and they have they have a cockpit, like a driving cockpit behind them and then the rest of it's just, you know, laden full of drugs. Um and yeah. uh, uh and you know I, I would I would submit that uh, boy they uh um you know they they're they're pretty fearless uh to go out there but the boats are pretty seaworthy. I mean mm. to to commit to commit. I mean they're almost six hundred miles off the coast of Columbia turn north and then about six hundred miles off of Mexico they turn right and try to come into Mexico. Um and they have, they all have these turning point or all they all have their, their own little um um it was eighteen hundred kilograms. That's what it was. I just saw okay. it here on my notes here. Right. I was looking okay. for uh yeah. Yeah it was wow. a lot. That is a lot. Yeah,
1: I I can see why the why the crew would get fatigued like
2: just moving it from one vessel to the other. Yeah it was uh it, it was it was you know the, it, so so you got you have the small boat's crews doing it, right? right and then, right. then you got the ship's company receiving it. And then we have to move it from the boat deck inside the ship someplace. Then we have to, when, once a uh, uh, United States postcard ship shows up, then we have to move it over to a place where we can disembark it. And then they have to do the same thing. Right. right. <laughs> um, oh, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a ton of work. It's really yeah. A ton of work. Yeah. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. Well you end up with a good
1: workout after after all
2: of yeah. that. Happened. Yeah, you sure do. You sure do. And of course, um it's cocaine. So my sailors are 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 wrapped up in masks, sleeves are rolled rolled down. Um, you know, they're wearing gloves. Uh and it's hot. Right. It's really hot down there, right? I mean yeah. so when you put all these things together and uh um you just like wow, this is a—it's a lot of work, and every all hands are on deck, right? Everybody has to uh, participate, and everybody has to get out there. And you know, yours truly was out there grabbing bales of cocaine and moving it from uh, from from the storage facility to the crane area. We we used our big twenty-ton crane, and we used a um, um, uh, cargo net to lower it down into Coast Guard boat, small Coast Guard auxiliary boats that they had, okay. so they could move it down to there. So they they used the crane to bring it up, and we used the crane to lower it down to them. But when we were taking it from the smugglers, we had to do everything by hand, one barrel at a time.
1: Wow. Well, and that speaks to some of the capability of her wolf. Like, you
2: have a very significant crane on board the ship. We've got a couple of them, yeah. So couple, that's right. uh, that big twenty-ton crane uh, on the on the quarterdeck. Uh, boy, we we really got our money's worth out of that thing this trip, uh, both north and south, and while we're alongside the uh, Squire and in Jamaica, we used it uh, to. Uh, so we um uh, we we didn't deploy empty-handed. We deployed with uh, humanitarian disaster relief sea containers as well. So we had two sea containers that were just full of. You know, blankets, tents, um, reverse osmosis um, devices, uh, generators, anything that you could possibly need for a, a stricken area by earthquake or flooding or something like that, that we could um, use to try to stabilize an area for a short period of time until the cavalry could arrive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we had two of those sea containers on board. And we also had to pick up another one from Jamaica. There was one that was staged down there. Um and so it was it was shipped out from uh well I don't know which city it was in Jamaica. It doesn't matter uh, we were in montego Bay. It got moved over to us uh, montego Bay, and we used the 2010 crane to bring that one on board as well um and so again, another unique capability the Canadian Navy doesn't have uh, or d- didn't have does not now um but um really demonstrates that uh you know we're down doing uh, uh, drug interdiction operations, but at the moment, it's a, a red flare went up and somebody needed help. Harry the Wolf can be redeployed and uh, get, go, go someplace prepared, not have to run someplace else to go grab some things and then turn around and try to get back. We could deploy beyond the scene, make an assessment and start, you know, making some calls uh, further back home uh, or to our allies to say, these are the other things that we need don't leave port right away. We need more of this stuff or whatever the situation is. Right. Um, and we can actually show up with some something to bring assistance to people. And of course, the ship's really quite large um, and that flight deck is huge and the hangar is really quite big and um, we can use that open space for staging, uh, for doing that type of humanitarian disaster relief work, bringing people on board. We have COTS. We have all these different things that we can do to support people, to sustain them for short periods of time in a terrible tragedy like an earthquake or something like that. So, um, you know, when we're, when we're down there, you know, we're down there not just wasting our time chasing drug smugglers. We're down there or anywhere in the world supporting one mission, but ready to support uh, any other type of small S uh, scalable Navy mission that we could possibly do uh, without sending that major combatant charging down the road to uh, to deal with an earthquake. We've got these new vessels that we can do that type of work with. And I think Would Canadians Canadians you... are really quite proud of that.
1: Yeah, oh, it, it, it like sounds like such an amazing capability that the ship has within oh. it. multi-role. And, you know, you mentioned the sea containers, how many can you take on board? As a matter of
2: just a mission uh, without losing a capability, I'd take six sea containers on the quarter deck. Um, okay. Three on the bottom and three on top. Okay. Uh, but if I'm willing to lose my flight deck, I can put more on the flight deck. So I can get get myself up to about nine if I really wanted to. Um, losing the flight deck isn't something that I really want to do, mm-hmm. um, but we can also use the hangar as well. We can also use, use the hangar as storage capacity, but you know, um, uh, that that comes with that comes with some you know uh, some decisions that you give something up to take something else. But you know th- those those things could be temporary. They could be we're going to use the flight deck right now, and those will be the first things to go, so we can get our flight deck back. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Well. So speaking of flight deck, um, having a flight deck and a hangar uh, kind of means that you know you you can certainly have the capacity to have a helicopter on board. But this particular deployment
2: you did not have a helicopter air detachment no not an air detachment but we did have the capability to bring a helicopter on board at any time and i considered it a couple of times um, was particularly with the um with the rescuees um uh you know we i we worked with the canadian coast guard when we were up north and i had a casualty that i had to uh uh get off the ship in an emergency and we landed to one of the canadian coast guard helicopters on board and uh that was course, the first time we were, was it not that was the first time, yeah. That was the first time the Canadian Coast Guard ever landed on a Canadian warship, um, and awesome. and it is pretty cool. Uh, and uh, I was really happy and really relieved that the Canadian Coast Guard they they have an incredible capability of their own, um, and they're really quite flexible. Uh, and they they have a capability they have a like a, a capability with with smaller pieces of equipment like the Bell helicopter. Uh, it doesn't come with a large. Um, uh, contingent a large debt it comes with a pilot and a mechanic right. um, okay. and so so that type of capability is uh is really quite handy in domestic operations when you're close to home mm-hmm. uh and it really proved to be really quite useful to me and i I thank them from the bottom of my heart for helping me um uh take care of my sailor and get uh get them to a hospital and get the help they need. Um, but when we were looking at the um the rescuees on board there was a real conversation that we were having about you know do we stay on station uh to continue to uh our to continue our patrol and is there a possibility for an aircraft that can come out to uh to collect these people mm-hmm. um, as it turned out, there wasn't um uh and there there wasn't there wasn't any uh Mexican uh capability out there to to help us out. Um, and the United States Coast Guard uh, weren't there to, they, they were going someplace else after we gave them the drugs, Hamilton in particular. They were destined for the Panama Canal. And, um, uh, you, know, you know, it really doesn't matter what country you're from or what you do for a living uh, in, in that country, whether you're military or not. Um, the Panama Canal is pretty strict when it comes to the schedule. And if you miss your slot, you go to the back of the line. Because there's a lot of other countries, and a lot of other businesses that are out there that already had their slot and they've bought and paid for. So right. you don't want to miss that spot. So they, they really were pressed for time. Uh, you know, I can't thank the captain enough for coming out to, uh, to to take these people off our hands and take the drugs off our hands. Um, and then sprint back to get into his position to meet for the Panama Canal. But uh, that was, that's what makes us great partners, right? I mean, um, uh, that, that kind of stuff, uh, uh, we worked tremendously well together. I mean, the time that he was on station with me was 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 it was it was, it was just slick. It was just really well done. Um, the way we were able to stage all of our things, have their small boat come up on stay, retrieve what they needed to retrieve from us, move back to their ship, and we did it in such a such a way that you'd think that we've been doing it for for years. Right. It wasn't just the first time that we were doing it, yeah, right. yeah. It right. was, but uh, you know, and that's a testament to their capabilities themselves, right? I mean, they, yeah. they came up to a brand new ship, um, and uh, not only the the ship Hamilton, but also you know the United States Coast Guard as, as a whole, working with a brand new ship, accepting us into their their operation area and uh, deploying us to do the work. Um, you know, I I can't imagine that. Um, uh, I, I'm pretty confident some folks may have had their doubts. About, um, uh, you know, an AOPV coming down to do that type of work. I mean, um, you know, let's face it. Um, people call them an icebreaker. So, right. you know, it's an icebreaker going down to do drug interdiction ops. You, well, that's, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> until they see it. Until they until they see it. And they start seeing all the capabilities of it. And they say, oh, that's what this is. It's not just an icebreaker. I get it. And then once they start to see it and see what it does, they're just like, wow, that is a really capable ship and very, really diverse in the things that it can do. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and I think you proved that.
1: Oh, I think you proved it in space. And uh, it, so I can't help but think that if you had a helicopter aboard, you could have perhaps even done sling load transfers of the narcotics yeah. over to the other ship.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we could have, uh, and uh, it, it did cross our mind as well. Um, Hamilton preferred to use their boat, not their helicopter. They had a helicopter, okay, um, but they 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 preferred to use their boat. And it was just, a, I mean, it was just it was one or the other, right? right. I mean, yeah. The, yeah. the boat, the, the helicopter, and the boat. They're going to be just as fast. Uh, the The time that the the time lost between the two uh, would have been, uh, you know, for the transfer would have been lost in the preparation. Uh, okay, preparing right. a helicopter and deploying it and then coming over and then going back and forth. So, um, it just, it, it either either way, it was fine. Um, when I was on board Harry DeWolf,
1: um, there was a, and I, I don't have the right terminology for it, but there's a boat that is on the, the stern of your ship. Uh, landing craft, landing craft, exactly. Thank you very much. So, you know, to me, could that have possibly been used to, you know, transfer these large amounts of narcotics? Like, and if that, how useful was the landing craft?
2: The landing craft is, um, it's, it's a very capable boat. So the landing craft itself is really quite large. Um, it weighs 17 tons. Um, and so we use it for putting small vehicles, large groups of people, um, and traversing between ship and shore. Almost right. primarily. Uh, we used it up north when we went to anchor off of Beachy where Franklin first anchored uh, and wintered over for the first time. And uh, we put a, a bunch of engineers and uh, DRDC scientists in it to redeploy back to G- Gascoigne Inlet where we have a, a huge uh, Canadian research and uh, facility up there. And we haven't been up there for a couple of years. So my engineers needed to go do some maintenance on the generators and things like that and just do a site check. Uh, so the next time that we go up there, we can service uh, the site and kind of take care of it. And that's going to be one of the many missions of the Harry Gulf class ships in the future. And that's quite a distance. I mean, you know, the, 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 the boat can go 500 miles over the horizon and it's got a big cabin in it and it's got a heated cabin or air conditioned cabin. Okay. Uh, it, has, it has its own little crane on it, too, a little two ton crane on it. Okay um, so it's okay. A really it's a really it's a it's a utility vehicle that we use when we use for shore connections. So would I've used it for drugs yeah I would have used it for drugs if I was moving it from the ship to shore. But when you're in open ocean and I have deployed it in open ocean up north uh you have to be cognizant of the the movements of the ship because it's a single point lift. And so you can you can appreciate 17 tons dangling from a string. And going back and forth, and you've got sailors on one side, you know, three sailors, or three groups of sailors on one side, three groups of sailors on the other side, trying to keep it stable. And holding 17 tons is pretty tough to do. Right. Um, yeah. You know, uh, And so on a stable platform, it's not too bad. You can spin it around, and you can do different things. But if the platform starts to move, you start to get that swinging, and um, it becomes really quite difficult for the three different sets of teams that are on those ropes to kind of time it. So they're working right. with one another in unison, right? Sure, sure. And so sure. when I when I'm in open ocean, um, it's something that uh, uh, I've done. Uh, and what I do is uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll get the team closed up onto the quarter deck. I'll put the cameras onto uh, onto the quarter deck so I can see what they're doing. And on the bridge, on the after part of the bridge, there's this huge television display screen so I can see everything that's going on down there. And I'll con the ship from the bridge using my bow thrusters and my engines to try to keep the ship as stable as possible and watch the movements of the uh, of the boat. So now I'm working the ship and my sailors are working the boat and we're trying to work in unison without talking to one another. We're just using eyesight and just kind of doing things and moving it, moving it over. So it can be done. But, uh, you know, an operation like that that I just explained to you, would probably take me more time than it would have taken me to move all the drugs over just to get uh, it in the water, right. particularly in open ocean like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I was just thinking that, you know, with the capacity that it had, um, I didn't even notice the two-ton brain that you have on it. But, uh, but yeah, it, it was as quick to do it the other way. Um, you did two drug busts, uh, two major drug busts on, on this deployment. Um, we don't necessarily have to get into the second one unless there's something interesting about it.
2: Yeah, the, the, the thing about the, the second one was the people inside the first boat were, I think they were... Um they're they're disappointed that they caught but happy to see us because right, the right. uh because of that storm. Right. And they, they ran out of gas. Right? So they were really in they were really in a bad place. Right. The other group were they weren't nice people. Mm. They were uh they they, they uh they, they were the opposite of nice. Um and yeah. uh they were quite aggressive in everything that they did. And I'll just say that, um, you know, we were tracking these folks. They were really quite good at what they did. Um, uh, they know all the operating procedures of uh, the United States Coast Guard and their allies. Um, the United States Coast Guard will use aircraft and helicopters and things like that to, to get in front of um, a vessel and slow it down because there's really no place to go. Once a helicopter is an aircraft on you, there's, you know, you're, you're caught. But if you're in a small boat that has a lot of gas, you might take a run for it. And so these guys, they went really far out. They were running fast and really aggressively in the water, which was surprising to me. Um, And we were doing. um, There's a thing that we refer to as relative velocity, where you you do a bunch, you do mathematical calculations to determine the velocity of one vessel and your velocity of another of yourself, and how do you drive to intercept them? Right. And sometimes the speed factor is such that the target of interest is going so fast, it might be impossible for you to intercept. And mm-hmm. there's, there's some mathematical equations that we can use uh, uh, called wig in and wig out that recognizing that we're slower than that vessel, that we can actually find a way to intercept them. Um, and of course, there's, there's, there's also the human factor. So my navigating officer, he did the math and he came to me and he said, sir, uh, I don't think we can intercept them. Uh, they're going too fast, and you know I'm not the kind of guy that kind of gives up on stuff. Um, okay. And and awesome. I, I when I looked at him, I I said, yeah, I think your 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 calculation is leaving out the human factor. So he was calculating the speed of advance of the vessel, uh, let's say thirty-five knots, but he wasn't taking into account that okay, we're out in the middle of the open ocean. Um, that boat's trying to run at 35 knots, but it's probably only making good about 30, or maybe 28. And every once in a while, those six people in that boat are going to need a break from you know, just slamming into the ocean constantly. Right? right they they, they right. got to take a break because there's a fatigue factor there. And then they have to swap out and stuff. And sure. I'm like, there's, there's, so we have to we have to take all these things into consideration. So when when uh, uh, you know my navigator is you know, all of his math is right. The science was right. But the human factor was leaving that out. And I was just like, no, nah, I think we're going to, we're going to press on. And I, I'm pretty confident we're going to intercept them. Okay. So we, we, we adjusted out. We adjusted uh, a number of times throughout the night. And uh, our chase started, you know, literally hundreds or 200 miles away from the, um, the, the target of interest. And uh, no, again, no aircraft support. We had additional, we had initial aircraft support, but that got lost. Um, and, uh, there were some doubts in the team this time, and uh, and you know I I'm I'm one of those people that, um uh I, I, that that kind of like when you're doubting or you want to give up that kind of frustrates me a little bit. Yeah. I, I can't I, I don't like to give up on anything. And, I, and I'm like bit. no we got to try. We got we got to push on. We got to try. And a, and even our support staff from headquarters they said you know you only got about a three percent chance of finding them. And that just that wow. just got me dug in. Yeah, three percent for you. That just got me dug in now. I'm right? <laughs> yeah. you know, okay, three percent. I'm gonna that three is mine. I'm gonna take yeah, it. right, right. I'm gonna so, so we charged for it. Um, my team stayed up for hours in the multi-purpose operation space, trying to get updates or trying to um, come up with newest positions. And we were doing a thing called dead reckoning, where we'd say. This is the last known position. This is the speed that we think that it's doing. So this is what we think it is every hour on the hour and stuff. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're coming up onto this contact and, uh, just before sunset, about an hour before sunset, I decide, you know, I don't want them to see me because if they see me, they're going to change this directory. I won't be able to catch him. So I need right. my boats in the water. Okay. I got to get my boats in the water. I got to get my teams in the boats to, to get them. Okay. So. About uh 60 minutes before sunrise, we're, we're, we're I'm where I think I should be about 20 miles ahead of them, or maybe even 30 miles ahead of them. So about an hour away from one another, right? Mm-hmm. And I put I want to put my boats in the water, and I want them to go down on the trajectory, but stay out far enough away from one another that if one of them sees them, then you know you can radio the other guy, and then that guy will come in, and but you cover more ground. Sure. And I'll stay north, so if they come blowing past me. Um, and we don't think there's any way of catching them. You're not so far away from the ship that you have to come charging back or and and find us. Right. So that was my plan. Okay. So first we briefed them in the empause, and my gut was telling me that I needed to talk to my team and look in their eyes and show them what I'm thinking. So uh, I brought them back up to the multi-purpose operation space, and we had a, we had a, I showed them the picture, the, the surface picture in the in the empause, and I said, This is this is where I think that they are, and this is what I want you to do. And, um, and our team's operating with night vision goggles and all that stuff. And they've got their radar and all that stuff. So, I, I, you know, there's a lot of confidence that they're going to, if there's something there, they're going to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as soon as they saw the picture, I said, you guys got it? You understand? And they said, yeah, we got it. I said, okay, go. So we put them in the water and they went charging down. And within about 15 minutes, I said, we got them. And I was just like, they got them. Or they got something at least, right? right? Okay. Yeah. And so... So they, they they start giving chase and then I hear they're running. And so I'm like, okay, they're running. And then my second boat says there's something wrong with the boat. We can't we can't come up past 20 knots. Huh, and okay. and then there was an error that came up on the visual display because this thing is a very sophisticated boat, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. so, and, and so I mean, so um uh so the an error comes up on the operator's display, and so I call up my text from the from my engineering department to come to the bridge. And see if they can walk them through the air and see if they can correct it. My other mm-hmm. guys are giving chase right now. Right. And but I got right. my other boat left behind, right? And now mm-hmm. I can see them because the sun's coming up and I see both the target of interest and my boat giving them chase. But there's but my guys are because my our our doctrine is to have both boats on scene so they're safe. Right. And uh and they're all working together and communicating to the vessel the target of interest to make sure that they know that they're gonna be safe too, that we don't mean them any harm. Mm-hmm. Um and we want to communicate with them in, in in that way, and and not let them start being afraid for themselves and start doing crazy things like turn their boat on them and try to run my guys over. All right, right that, yeah, that, that, right. that that that's happened. That's happened in the past. Not to me, it hasn't, but it certainly it's happened in the past. So, so it it can be a it can be a pretty dangerous game, uh, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to human life and factors. Right. Um. And so uh, our our techs were talking to our guys. I'm getting updates about this vessel. Um, and, uh, my operators inside the boat figured out, okay, well, I'm just going to shut the whole thing off and turn it back, all back on again. Now i got a boat dead in the water. I'm like, oh dear, I'm going to, I'm going to lose this guy. This guy's going to get away. I'm going to have to go and recover that boat. i will have to get the other boat back tow him in and stuff like that. So yeah. we brought the system down, tried to bring it back up and he came back up. Oh, good. And he gave Actually, a chase, but okay. he didn't know where he, he didn't know where the other guys were because he was too far away. and He couldn't see over the horizon any longer. And and so he called me up on the radio and he said, sir, I can't see them. I said, can you see me? He said, yeah. I said, I'm going to come up best on four. Yeah. I'm going to go charging towards the target best on four. I want you to close me. And I'll, once you close me and you're about 1,000 yards off, I'm going to get you to drive back onto the target. And he goes, okay. So he comes charging towards me and he's doing close to 40 knots. And he comes charging, he's ch- closing my numbers. And then as he comes around, he's about a 1,000 yards away, maybe 1,500 yards away. He says, I see him. I said, okay, deploy. So they deployed, and, and they got onto their quarters, and uh, the uh, the fellows in the boats, uh, they weren't very thrilled to uh, be given up, but they, they gave up a bit reluctantly, um, and uh, when they came on board the ship, they weren't very happy. Um, there's a couple of guys that are really quite angry. There's one guy that uh, was uh, uh, clearly digging into the product, which he was carrying, um, <laughs> and uh, he had asked, the staff, if we could have some more when he was on board our ship, and he's awesome. just like oh, you're, you're in trouble, buddy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. You're definitely in the right business, but you're in trouble.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. my god! Yeah. Wow, well, pretty, then, exciting yeah. uh, pretty exciting stuff. Pretty exciting stuff. And you know, just you know, to the, the you know, the credit goes to the sailors um, and their their ability to think on the fly. They, they're not you know they, they don't do this every day um right. they develop their experience and in, in, in this kind of stuff when they do it um and uh uh you know they they did everything that i asked them to do and more um but um you know people telling me to give up doesn't fly it's to work um I love and it. uh we we're, we're going to press on no matter what so that's what we're going to do good for um, you and i'm glad right. that we did i'm glad that we did because that 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 was rewarding in one way that um, uh, we got uh, you know got those drugs off and things like that. It was also rewarding in another way to see how mean these guys were.
0: They were oh, just right. bad
2: people. Yeah, they, they yeah. weren't friendly people. And, you know, um, the first group of people that we brought on board, I personally went down to see them every day, to talk with them, to make sure that they were comfortable. We treated them just like they would be sailors on board our ship. Um, you know, they ate everything that we that we ate steak night. They were, they were eating steak and lobster when they were on board the ship. Um, not that we have steak and lobster every night, but uh, I don't want your listeners to believe that. But, uh, never, but we do eat quite well uh, on board the ship, and they ate and and enjoyed all those things. Um, we have fitness activities for them every day to keep them. And we had movies playing for them at night time to keep their minds active. So they were so their morale was was you know that's a bad thing to be in. You, you just got arrested for drug smuggling. An international drug smuggling uh, incident, and uh, yeah. um, but we we were we were Canadian, you know we, we were we did everything that the Canadians would expect us to do to uh, uh, to to make them comfortable on our ship, and you know they're in those boats for a while, so you can appreciate the condition that these folks are in. Yeah. They smell bad. They're not showering. They don't have toilets on board, so you can appreciate all of the things that come with that. And yeah. uh, when they came on board, Harriet wolf. We ran every single one of them through sick pay. They had a physical checkup by a doctor. um, And uh, they had showers, clean clothes, uh, comfortable beds, brand new bedding every day. Uh, Just to say that we took really good care of them. And uh, the same thing for for the other fellows too, but they didn't appreciate it. They were blowing their nose on their blankets that we were giving them and spitting on our deck. And uh, um, in spite of that, we didn't treat them poorly. We just just, uh, recognized that... uh, some of these people aren't very nice people. Yeah. And some of them are just uh, people just doing things to try to survive in life today. And right. sometimes it doesn't work out for them.
1: Yeah. Well, it's an interesting difference. And uh, I think the way that you guys treated them just shows a bit of humanity. And, uh, yeah. you know, treating people the way you want to be treated, regardless
2: of what the situation is. And, Maybe you know, they they, they, when they when they left, the first group, when they left, they thanked me. Yeah. I have no well, doubt. The second group, when they left, they were um, there. There's three of them that were really quite um, level-headed and sturdy young men, and there was three of them that were clearly uh, really aggressive,
1: seasoned criminals, maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so now, was this all on the Pacific
2: side? Yeah yeah it was yeah yeah we uh uh it appears to me and i don't have a lot of experience in this i've only done it a few times in my career it appears to me that um the lion's share of the the big runs are occurring on the pacific ocean um in around that pocket of colombia and mexico in, in that area and on the west coast um i i get the sense that the people that are kind of running drugs and things like that are people that are just ordinary and walk the life people that, um as you see the ones that are getting arrested on the East coast are kind of unlikely candidates. Like last year there was a gentleman that got arrested from Nova Scotia. He was 70 years old. Really? And uh, when the, yeah, when the judge asked him, said, what are you doing? Why, why are you a drug runner?" No, no, yeah. I was just asked to do it. And uh, his excuse was they offered me so much money. That, you know, I was, uh, you know, how do you turn, I, I just want to turn it down. I said, I'm 70 years old. I've got like maybe 10, maybe 15 years left in my life. And if I, if I made it, I could have gave my family a whole bunch of money. Right, right. I would have been set. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And right. it was a gamble that he was willing to take with his sure. last 15 years of his life. So, okay, right. well, you get to spend your last 15 years of your life in jail,
0: I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a price for it. That's for sure.
0: Let's pause here for this message from TALUS. TALUS is proud to have served HMCS Harry DeWolf through this and other deployments. The Aegis project which TALUS is delivering is unique. As a relational performance-based contract, it has the potential to deliver faster, better, and more cost-effective procurement. It is the best model Canada has for creating the step change in innovation the Navy wants. Recognized among Canada's top R&D spenders, TALUS brings leading digital capabilities in AI, big data, cybersecurity, connectivity, and soon quantum to augment its engineering strength. As Canada's partner of choice for ages, TALUS is committed to empowering Canadian industry to support this program for decades to come. More than 120 Canadian businesses are engaged already. With partners like Cove and through programs like Synergy, TALUS is tapping Canada's innovation ecosystem and Canadian businesses to bring new capability and digital sustainment to Canada's sailors. Now, let's get back to our chat with Commander Corey Gleason.
2: So, tell me now about going through the Panama Canal. Yeah, so we I mean we spent four days in Panama. Because you don't go to Panama and not visit the city of Panama. It's an amazing place to visit. Um, and it really was. I mean, there, there's really two aspects to Panama. It's, uh, you know, the old city and then the new city. And both places are tremendous places to visit. Okay. Um, and um, so the sailors spent four days there. I hosted an ambassador from uh, Canada uh, at the Panama embassy. Came on board with RCMP and CDSA agents and stuff for a tour and a walkabout and things. Um and uh, for the most part, uh, the Panama Canal visit was, of course, we did our ambassadorial work. Um, but for the most part, it was a flat-out rest. It was the first time that we uh, kind of had a flat-out rest uh, since uh, San Diego. And uh, and so um, uh, our passage plans, uh, when you when you go to Panama Canal, you have to schedule yourself in months in advance, okay. and it costs a small fortune to do it. But you don't get your time slot until about 24 to 36 hours out. So you know you're going on that day, but you don't know when. Okay, gotcha. Um, and so we kind of thought, I personally thought that uh, we were going to go somewhere around 9 o'clock in the morning. So I would have to get my sailors up. We'd slip, go to an anchorage position, wait for a pilot, and then i start making my way up to the canal. And so I spent some time while we were there just to jump in the, the, my car. And go take a look at the Panama Canal itself and just do a recce to kind of figure out how does this work. Because they have these train trolleys and they have these small boats in the water that are really oars. literally oaring people in a boat. They lower <laughs> a cable down. These guys in the oars row out, hand the cable up to some other crew on board the ship. Not my crew. They bring they bring their own crew on board my ship. Okay. They receive a cable and they put it on one of my bollards. Um, my bits on board the ship and then they they literally hold the ship in position. They don't pull it, but they just hold the ship in position in between the the actual, um, the canal locks themselves so it doesn't touch and the ship uses propulsion to kind of move forward and the the, the, the trolleys are heavy enough and the cables are strong enough that, you know, as the ship is moving forward, it can stop the ship. They have the ability to do that. So they do pull a little bit, um, but they do use our engines to pull us through. Um, So our transit... Our, our transit time came to us uh, the day before. It was at uh, uh, seven o'clock at night, oh, and sunset was somewhere around eighteen hundred or eighteen thirty, so six thirty. And so we were going to do it in the dark. It wasn't going to be that dark because the Panama Canal lights up like nobody's business when you're going through there, right? Uh, oh, really? It's just okay. dark, right? Oh, right it's right. just dark. So, um, uh, so it was a bit of a. there was a bit of a downer that I was going to have to do it that late, and the other factor is that i got to do it at that late yeah right so it takes 12 15 hours to drive through that thing so now i'm going to be up for 30 odd hours before i jump out the other end right and so i got to drive this ship i mean um you know you bring pilots on board and stuff like that but you're still the captain you still got to do stuff yeah right things are going (laughs) sideways you got to pull yourself out of that yeah so you know so at seven o'clock at night we found ourselves i was slipping our berth and i found myself having to have to stage myself because Seven o'clock didn't necessarily mean seven o'clock. It meant somewhere around seven o'clock. So we didn't actually start making our way uh, while I'm underway, just uh, on the outside of the locks. I'm now just sitting there with my engines running, uh, waiting for me to drive over to my spot. But there's ships coming and going. And so I'm I'm out in an open bay uh, trying to hold my position. But people need to appreciate that the ship moves. Right. wind, yeah, sure. currents, sure. Yeah. all that things. So I'm. I, you don't just sit there. You don't just sit there and just turn your. You know, just, and the ship doesn't move. Like there's a real danger that you could run aground, or you right. can run into another vessel or something like that. Right? These these things. It's it's a moving thing. So you have to constantly do things with your engines. So that can get really quite exhausting after a while, particularly when you're trying to just keep yourself stationary and stuff. And uh, you know, so. How do you do that? You work with your officers of the watch and you, you give them some instructions and uh, you give them uh, some, some limiting parameters. That if you fall within, we put a, um, uh, we refer to as a circle around the ship on on a radar and just tell them to stay within that circle. And if you come from 500 yards on the outside of the circle, alert me and I'll, and I'll come and take the con away from you and I'll put ourselves back. And so anyway, so we that, that's kind of things that we do. Uh, to kind of keep our uh, keep ourselves from fatiguing too quickly, because if your brain's operating too often too much um you'll you'll start to miss things and you'll start to forget, and you'll you'll slow down right. um, I think right. as most people will appreciate uh, and besides that, I've got thirty hours of driving ahead of me um, and so <laughs> so we're, we're waiting and finally we get to, to a point that uh, we're, okay we're gonna we're gonna proceed towards the the canal into the lock um, and I'm talking to the pilot he didn't do a, a terrific job and this little fault of his is probably just something that he's in conversations that he doesn't necessarily have in, in his second language, English, mm-hmm. um, didn't do a, you know, a great job trying to commute. I was trying to figure out what's the set going to be like, well, when I get close enough to the locks, there's water coming out of the locks. Um, how does that interact with the ship and am I going to be set to starboard and be set to port? Um, what, what's that going to be like? Um, and the other part that I was missing was I was going to end up sharing that lock with another vessel all ah, the way through. Great. Sharing a lock uh, with another vessel meant that, you know, anything that that vessel was doing, it was ahead of me. Okay. So anything it was doing with its propeller was going to affect me. Right. Because it was going to push water towards me, right? Sure. And pushing water towards me has, uh, has its own unique things that, that's going to happen to the ship. Um, and so initially I was just following, we, we kind of got close to the lock and, and I, I started to understand what the set was doing. Um, and it was setting me towards the, the wall. So the way you, you come into the uh, the lock area is you have a straight wall to on your right hand side. And on the left hand side, it kind of um, curves in like a V shape until you get to the actual lock itself. and You can drive right in to this camber area. Okay. And so it was sending me to it was sending me to the right, and as it was sending me to the right, I found myself carrying a lot of starboard helm, like thirty degrees of starboard helm, which is a lot. Wow. Um And uh, and just to keep my stern off the wall, and because you're 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 pushing your stern out this way, um, your bow is going to go that way. So I'm using my bow thruster to pull myself out away from the wall. So I'm using a perpendicular maneuver. To keep myself off the wall and to proceed inside the chamber, so pretty sophisticated stuff. But again, remember I said earlier the ship is uh, really quite maneuverable. That bow yeah. thruster and those those rudders and those um, uh, two rudders that I can actually work independent of one another in my two propellers. Yeah. So the ship is really quite capable, and I, I was such surprised to see how much rudder I needed to carry uh, when I was going into that camber. And I do wonder if it's because of the vessel that was ahead of me. Um, I would like to go back and try it again without another vessel to see if that was the case. Right. But So we would get up to one lock, the first lock, and um, this crew came on board by small boat. Um, The pilot support was already on board. The crew had a talk with the pilot, and they went down to the folks that were escorted by one of of our staff and went down to the quarter deck. And the pilot would ask me to drive up, and then he would just say, okay, captain, that's all I need from you now. And essentially what would happen was the cables would be connected to my bow, connected to my stern. And then the the ship would just be drawn in very slowly into the lock and then stopped. Um, and the pilot was talking to the operator on the ground who was operating the cranes. And it was all done by sound signals and lights and things like that. There was very little talking going on okay. um, and uh, um, and, you know, if we in, as, as we were going through, if I was going too fast with my propellers, as we're going through the lock, would, there would be these red lights going on where it's telling me to slow down. And the green lights going saying that, you know, everything's just fine. Just stay, stay with that speed. And then okay. red light, green light, red light, green light. So it's really interesting thing to go through and uh, really professionally done. These guys do this every day, clearly, right? Um, uh, but uh, really, really kind of a neat thing to do. Um, as we got out to the other end and introducing the ship into now the Atlantic Ocean again, the weather was just kicking back up again, um, with uh, lightning storms and uh, thunder, and it almost felt like it was um, fireworks occurring and welcoming yeah. us back to the uh, to the uh, like a big celebratory thing mm-hmm. that you just right. circumnavigated North America. Congratulations! Yeah. For <laughs> <my> <laughs> <name>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, welcome back to the Atlantic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but oh, wow. boy, it was a, it was a, it was a really. Um, a lot, yeah. That was it. Was a it was a beautiful morning. I, I don't know if you like lightning and thunder and stuff like, like that. I personally awesome. do. I, I recall yeah. my dad waking me up as a as a kid, and we would sit out in, um, uh, on the porch and watch thunder and lightning and the in the rain when it come down, and just uh, we really really liked it, and I really enjoyed it too. And uh, good memories. Anyway, anytime I saw that kind of stuff, it reminds me of my dad, who passed away years ago. But um, it was just a, just a really cool thing to occur. Um, yeah uh, well, at maybe, that time yeah
1: maybe your dad was looking down at you at that time too right?
2: well maybe he was the one that was telling you used more starboard helm yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh my god <laughs> too
1: funny <laughs> so so you come out you're now in the atlantic and uh and obviously you
2: went to jamaica and all that other stuff but i guess the next yeah
1: we stayed on patrol Okay.
2: Oh, you were still on patrol, Yes, Okay. Yeah, we're still on patrol because the patrol is both—it's um, the—it's the Op carib right? So it's the—it's right. the, it's the right. whole thing, both both uh, both sides. Sure. So we stayed on patrol for about two or three days. Uh, we intercepted some fishermen, said hello to them, um, and uh, you know the good old Canadian way of doing it—just walk up and say hello to them and ask them if there's a, if they need anything and if everything's okay um and uh carried on we didn't find anybody we didn't get any intelligence on on anything and uh um and uh we actually ended up going into uh Jamaica uh, a few hours early okay we went to Montego Bay yeah there was a bit of a mix up on the on the berth assignments initially they they just started cruise ship season again in Montego uh, right. Bay and okay. the first cruise ship was going in the exact same date and time that we were going in um, but um, there was a mix up. I'm not sure precisely what really happened, whether it was somebody didn't really look at the documentation for the length and size of the vessel, uh, or they thought perhaps, um, you know, they just maybe they thought we were a Kingston class vessel. I mean, our ship is huge. Yeah. Um, and so the berth assignment that they wanted us to go to, I couldn't go into. I would just lay, I, I mean, I ended up beaching it. It okay. wasn't enough water. And so, but I was fortunate that uh, there was. A whole bunch of work that's been done in Montego Bay where they put in a new pier area for cargo shipping and things like that that was opened. Oh, so instead okay. of going to the cruise ship jetty, um we went to just a little bit further away, not that much further, it was like maybe about five ship lengths away from uh, the original berth assignment, um, to another one. And there again, uh we turned on our uh ambassadors' hats. We had another uh visit from uh our Canadian uh embassy and uh yeah we had a lot of uh, different officials come on board from Jamaica and they were really really spectacular folks to visit with and communicate with um the, the local um senior folks there and they were really really pleased and happy and excited to be on board the ship as well i mean harry wolf has uh, really kind of brought some really unique excitement that's um you know i personally haven't seen or experienced in a long time and i was i was just really thrilled to um, to be able to to be part of that. Then finally, we had to deliver our our United States Coast Guard home. Uh, Ah, So we went up into Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, We dropped them off in Norfolk. Uh, They stayed overnight. Uh, Most of the team flew out the second day once we were alongside. But uh, their OIC and uh, one of their mentor chiefs um, stayed behind for a huge, um, another ambassadorial event where we... um, uh, we had, uh, you know, United States Navy, United States Coast Guard, um, uh, senators, uh, local politicians, Canadian uh, uh, representatives, both civilian and military, on board the ship to really kind of celebrate the work that we did. And the United States Coast Guard, their one the mighty 106, were really quite celebrated there. They, they you know, they, they—you could just see how proud their admiral was of their of their team and this was a brand new team coming out from the training organization and uh going out to sea doing the business on a brand new ship and uh i think that most people didn't expect to see the amount of success that uh, that we saw um uh, i can say that for sure that some people doubted it um but i was going to prove them wrong and i did and uh and i was so proud of them uh and they were really emotionally moved about leaving the ship they um they 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 really bonded with the ship's company the ship's company loved them uh the ship's company loved all the work that they got to do throughout this whole thing not just the 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 op crib thing and they're incredibly proud to uh, get the opportunity to meet with all these different uh senior folks both from canada and from the countries that they were visiting to talk about their work um and uh I hope your listeners feel that because it's, uh, it's really sincere when we talk about how proud we were of the work that we do and the work that we did. It's, uh, it's sincere.
1: I certainly do. And I'm certain a of our listeners too. And you told me a story about one of the crew. And I know from previous conversations that it wasn't just one crew, many crew shed a tear
2: leaving the ship. Yeah. Yeah. In part of our preparations prior to going north, we had some uh, uh, work that we wanted to do for force protection, and uh, we had a uh, we had put put a small boat on in the water to act as if it was uh, menacing, carry the wolf. And what we did was, um, what your listeners, there, there's different reactions that we that we will do in a ship when we get presented with the threat. So if it's just a small boat. And it's just, you know, coming close to us and moving away from us and things like that. We pay attention to it. We try to radio it, try to tell them, you know, please observe the rules of the road, the collision regulations and, uh, you know, um, and request that you remain clear, that kind of stuff. And then when you when if we see a weapon, um, then that changes the game a little bit in conversation inside the ship, not externally right, right away. Um, and then if the, the 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 people inside the boat come kind of come up on aim on the ship and start pointing at us and things like that, that really kind of changes the conversation completely and what we're going to do in our force protection posture inside the ship. So that's what we were practicing. We were just uh, I got a bunch of new people on board the ship. Um, they they're, they're learning the platform. Uh, they're learning where they need to be in different uh, scenarios and things like that. Um, and I needed to run this th- these types of scenarios on board the ship. And putting a small boat in the water um, with uh, a few people inside the boat to act as belligerents um, was their job. And um, you know, like I said, when you're driving small boats in in the open ocean, it can be uh, it's it's a tough thing to do, and you you bounce around quite a bit. And uh, if the boat's doing a lot of maneuvering and stuff. Um, you you want to stay sitting down um because the thing the thing is designed with these shock mounted seats and they're great places to be sitting when you're bouncing around <laughs> exactly <laughs> but this young fellow this young fellow was uh, uh just repositioning himself with a weapon and the boat was bouncing and he didn't tie himself properly and he broke his ankle so the scenario broke the scenario was over, and he came back to the ship um and we recovered him. We took care of him We're, clearly we you know, we, we have to land him now. Um and I went to go see him in Sick Bay and uh he was he was apologizing to me for getting hurt.
1: Wow. Like I mean it was an accident, right?
2: It's right, right. Your ankle's a little bit more important than uh than, than anything right now. And he's apologizing to me for getting hurt, um and uh for letting me down.
1: You know. Commander Gleason, we've had the opportunity to chat a few times. And each time has been absolutely wonderful. I mean, I've seen you get emotional. I've heard of your crew getting emotional. I've gotten emotional hearing these stories. And I love every bit of it. I really do. You know, I find these stories that really get personal and, and it's not just because it's an inaugural deployment and it's not just because it's a new class the people make a ship and i'm not saying this because you're giving me the kindness of your time but it starts from the top down and maybe the other way around but you are just you're an amazing captain from everything that i've seen because you give people time and you give them your genuine heartfelt caring and i think that's what every sailor airman marine you know, special forces, operator, coast guardsman, whomever—that's what they want from leaders. At least mm-hmm. that's what I would want. And um, man, I would love to see. It with you. I really would. I'd I would really love would. to have you. <laughs>
0: you should well, have
1: came <laughs> down to Panama. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> that would have been such. But I would have seen darkness the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. So I got to ask you, you, you know, you pulled into Norfolk and you also had a U.S. Navy uh, Lieutenant J.G. that sailed with you yeah. the whole time. That was a cool little story to this. old Yeah. Does.
2: Yeah. It's a Turbo. Turbo, turbo is awesome. his nickname. Yeah. Lieutenant awesome. uh, Lucho. Yeah. So he was um, a young fellow that uh, um, he, uh, we, we have an admiral that works out of uh, Norfolk and we always keep uh, a senior officer operating down there and uh they had asked uh, would it be possible to get a couple of united states uh, navy officers on board the ship and uh and you know i was really kind of pressed for bunking i didn't have a lot of bunk space le- left over i have 87 bunks and um you know there there's a long long list of people that we needed to train on board the ship and, and uh and, and in the navy um but uh we found ourselves in a position that we could take one and, uh, he joined us in a Callaway of all places. No um, kidding. And, and, uh, yeah. And he sailed with us uh, through the Northwest Passage. Um, he got a, a bridge watchkeeper's ticket, which means that, uh, he gained my trust that he could stand a watch on board the ship on the bridge and do the right things in cases of emergencies or, or just out of routine operations and stuff. And uh, he, he stopped, of course, stayed with us in Esquimalt, and uh, he discovered British Columbia and Va- Vancouver Island and stuff. And and then he carried on. He was supposed to leave in Victoria. And um, I sat down with him when, when I was up in, um, I want to say it was in Herschel Island. I was having a chat with him. And I said, do you want to leave or do you want to try to stay? And he said, oh, I'd love to stay, but I don't think he'll let me. And I said, well, you go ahead and, do your thing. Send your, send your letter to your commanding officer and your executive officer and uh, um, and just leave it with me. And so he, he sent his letter to his commanding officer uh, and his executive officer. And I contacted uh, our admiral that's, that was in Norfolk just to say that, uh, you know, uh, I told him that he's got a ticket and he's a, he's a wonderful uh, sailor and he's a real gentleman. And, you know, the, you know, an excellent representation of the United States Navy, and we'd love to keep him if we could, right up until awesome. Norfolk. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the training impact or you know the the impact on his career is going to have, uh, mm-hmm. if it's going to be a positive one or a negative mm-hmm. one, because everybody has to, um, everybody works on a time frame, right? Um, sure. Uh, in in all your training, you've got so much time to get qualified, and if you don't get qualified, then there's a consequence to that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and so I didn't know where he where he where he was in his training and stuff. But as it turned out, um, his uh, commanding officer saw the wisdom in keeping him. And uh, when he got to Norfolk, boy, there was a lot of jealous other junior officers there that met him. And uh, he took them all for tours. And He was incredibly proud. Um, And when we had that, uh, that official visit with all the dignitaries on board the ship, his mom came. Oh, uh, and his yeah, his mom came on board the ship for the uh for the cocktail party and uh, his grandfather came on board the day before to meet with me and to thank me for all the wonderful things that I did for his grandson and his mom uh told me that uh that that her son is is a changed man because of the experience that he that he had on board the ship and those were really good things to hear eh um uh and you know to hear it but to know that they mean it um yeah was was just really really quite warm hearted uh, thing and to have his mom come and experience that activity with with their son and to see her son uh really blossoming the way he did was really quite it was really nice.
1: yeah oh, I, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm I'm glad you got to
2: date. That's awesome. That's I am certain. too. We had we, we had some commanding officers from uh, San Diego that came on board the ship and uh, I had asked him to give them a tour. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, while I was doing some other things and they were going to regroup in my cabin afterwards. And uh, they wasted no time telling him how lucky he was to be doing what he was doing. I guess that's pretty rare in the United States Navy for a young officer like that to get that kind of opportunity. And, and you know, if there was ever anybody that deserved something like that, it was this young man. He was just an amazing young officer.
1: Fantastic. Well, I'm I'm so glad that he got that opportunity and and vice versa. The Canadian Navy had that opportunity to have him as part
2: of the group. This brings us together closer in a bond too, right? Yeah. I mean no no matter no matter what our differences are and different opinions and ideas and things like that, when we experience one another in a professional uh way like that and we get to break bread together, we start to understand one another in a different way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. So, you actually had mentioned to me in a previous conversation that there are similarities between the approach of operating the AOPV, the Harry DeWolf class, and the U.S. Navy's littoral combat ship. Uh, Pull at that string for me a little bit, if you don't mind, because I found that interesting. And um, there's something unique to the way that you guys operate, what the crew
2: on Harry DeWolf
1: does versus other ships.
2: Yeah, so um, the LCSs they run in a similar construct of a small crew, big ship, right? And through the years, I had been paying you know real attention to them because knowing that I was going to be bringing a ship into service myself that was going to be a really big ship with a small crew, I was paying a lot of attention to what people were saying about that, and uh, um, and not just you know uh, the United States, but our allies as well because our allies are operating. Um, you know, not maybe not ships that, of that size, but they are operating sizable ships with very small crews, um, mm. like the Rasmussen class, the, the, the Danish Navy, they're operating a Rasmussen class off the Greenlandic coast with 19 people on board. Um, yeah, yeah that's not a lot of people. The Iceland uh, has one uh, major ship called Thor and um, it's operated with 17 people on board. And that's a big ship. Um. And so uh, Harry and Wolf is uh, operating with uh, us, you know, we, our core establishment is 65. I have 87 bunks. And um, of those extra bunks that we have on board the ship, we usually use them for fourth generation training. Uh, but the feedback that I was getting from, you know, not directly from the United States, but by people who are working with the United States and, and may know a little bit more about the vessels than I do, was that it doesn't work. And I didn't quite understand what what, what doesn't work, and um, the the conversation kind of blossomed into recognizing that there is a maintenance issue on board the ships, and uh, um, they needed more people to do uh, different things on board the ships um, uh, to do maintenance. And when I when I talk about maintenance, I, you know, the, it, it, every, I think everybody would understand the general term maintenance. But when I'm speaking about maintenance, I'm not just, you know, thinking about maintenance of changing oil in in one of the engines and things like that. I mean, doing dishes, uh, cleaning the heads and wash places and cleaning the decks and washing the bulkheads and, you know, literally just cleaning up after yourself. Mm -hmm. And in, in, out of tradition, larger ships have large crews and large crews, uh, the most junior people on board the ship do that type of work on board as well as their own learning their own tasks so right. but uh, of, of anybody else on board the ship um, if you you know so far we'll call it cleaning stations and we'll, we'll say that cleaning stations encompasses all the things I just talked about sure. um, the, the most junior people in the ship are doing that um, and you can get away with that when you've got a crew of 200 people or, you know 250 people on board the ship right um, but You know, when you got a crew of 65 and you've got that that cadre of junior people only make up a small fraction of that, you can't do that anymore. And so what I've learned, and I learned this uh, by spending some time working with our allies, is that that philosophy just can't work. And you need to have the courage through good leadership to recognize that that philosophy doesn't work and do something about it. So when we brought Harry and Wolf into service, I said, everybody's going to do cleaning stations, including me. Um, and that makes it a lot more palatable when there's more senior people that are being asked to do that type of work on board the ship when they don't routinely, as out of tradition, do it on a on larger combatant vessels um, to pile in and do, do their part, right? Because everybody yeah. has to do their part. So for this to work, you needed a different philosophy and you needed a philosophy where... Um you know everybody does their part it doesn't matter how senior you are. clean up after yourself um yeah. do your own cleaning stations um you know i i have uh there's a certain my my senior chief on board the ship is uh is assigned a um, a set of flats on board the ship that's that uh she has to keep clean my XO has got a set of uh stairwells that he has to keep clean i've got a set of flats that i' I'm responsible for and um and when it comes to doing dishes, everybody takes their turn. You'll see officers inside the uh, scullery that's what we call it when we're dishwashers and all that stuff mm-hmm. they'll be in there doing dishes when it's their turn everybody takes turns uh, it's your day today get in there and start doing dishes and we don't need to talk to one another like that either we don't need to say get in there and do your part it's just your day right and, um, they just get in there and do it and they do it happily they listen to music um, if you were, if you were down there at lunchtime and you, you, you would see the group that was in there, they all had their own unique music, which is, which is interesting. <laughs> but they, they, they'd be all in there and, uh, um, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they'd be in there with, uh, uh, doing dishes and, uh, just keeping the things clean and, uh, and then, and then moving on to the other tasks of the day. And it's, uh, and it, and it just made us that much tighter of a group of people, um, working together. Um, and I think everybody appreciated it. Um, I, I know that the more junior people really did. Um, I'm sure. That yeah. uh, they, they they recognize that, uh, you know, there, there's there's senior people and there's junior people, and that equality doesn't exist, but sometimes equality exists, right? And when it comes to taking care of yourself and to looking after yourself, there's where the equality starts. Right. You know, seniority and things like that and experience, all these other things that are, are important in, in a worship function but there's other things that we just need to work together and just do the same things. And that, that was just one of them. And so, you know, when you see Harry the Wolf um, return from this deployment, you don't see Harry the Wolf all rusty and uh, with dirty flats and things like that. You see Harry the Wolf um, well-maintained both internally and externally. Everybody has their part ship outside and everybody has their part ship inside. And so, um, you know, uh, it, it, it'll just adds to the longevity of the ship as well when everybody's doing their part to maintain the ship. So, um, not to suggest that, uh, every other Navy needs to follow my philosophy, uh, about uh, keeping a ship clean, um, and doing the maintenance. Uh, but if you tell me it doesn't work, I'm going to scratch on why. Exactly. And you might yes. not like the outcome, right? <laughs> you might not like what we find out. And then there's a conversation that has to be had, you know, it has to be a very grown up, meaningful, mature conversation that comes out of it. And, uh, you know, you're not, you're not so elite that you can't clean up after yourself. Yes,
1: absolutely. Well, I think it goes a long way. If the commanding officer is cleaning up after himself, it sets an example. And if you're not balking at it, well, why should anybody else, you know? And at the end of the day, now you've also, you know, you've created that kind of, that, you know, common playing field amongst everybody. And, you know, the ship benefits, you benefit personally, and the,
2: the crew benefits. Like, where's the downside it's to a, this? It's a pride in your ship, too, right? I mean, right. Uh, yeah. you, you, like me bringing that ship back home, uh, not looking like a stained rust bucket. And it could. I mean, if you don't do the maintenance, um, yeah, the, right. the, the, the 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 rust is going it's going to start to rear its ugly head. Sure. Right. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't do the maintenance inside the ship, it shows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when you bring a ship back looking almost either as good or a little bit better than it left, that's saying something.
1: That is saying something. I completely agree. Well, on that topic, tell me about sailing back into Halifax Harbor because that will round out this conversation, but it also rounds up the whole deployment and the circumnavigation. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so uh we left Norfolk, Virginia with the fleet commander, uh Commodore Robertson on board, uh and his chief. And um and uh they sailed back with us to uh Halifax. I also sailed back, uh maybe some of your listeners will be disappointed to hear this, but I sailed back with the person who's gonna relieve me. Um uh and um so he his name's Jeff Simpson. He's never sailed in an AOPV or really kind of walked the flat, so it was uh, really quite beneficial From my perspective, that's, uh, I brought him on board a little awkward, mind you. Uh, the new guys coming in and, uh, uh, but it was, it was the right thing to do. Um, because you know, it was an opportunity for him without any responsibilities whatsoever to kind of walk the flats of the ship, talk to me, watch how this machine works. How do we do business, uh, at sea on board, uh, launch boats and all those things? We ran a bit of a, of a demo for him in the Commodore. And when we got up north, uh, I ran up at best speed on, on three MDGs uh, because of weather again. Um, and I, I, I wanted to get the Christmas lights up before we got alongside. Right. And So okay. in order to do that, uh, I, I couldn't do it in an open ocean because it was just too it was, it was windy and just wouldn't have been pleasant. So sure. we went into St. Margaret's Bay and uh, went to anchor there. Uh, overnight. In the morning, the team uh, got up and started putting up Christmas lights and stuff. And um, Admiral uh, Craig Baines, uh, mm-hmm. our commander of the RCN, drove out to St. Margaret's Bay and we sent our small boat out to get him and brought him on board so he could uh, congratulate the crew for a job well done. And to come back in, we're flying the Admiral's flag and the Commodore's flag um, and uh, to bring the ship uh, alongside our brand new November Juliet jetty, just uh, uh, astern of um, Margaret Brook. Uh, Harry Wolfe's sister ship, awesome. and um, you know, on on the jetty, there was uh, lots of fanfare. Uh, the media was out there to greet us to welcome us. I was really happy to see that. Uh, the lieutenant governor was there. Uh, I presented him with a flag from the ship that flew through the Northwest Passage uh, for him to keep. Um, and uh, and the our own admiral from Commander Marlett, uh, Admiral Santarpia, who had gone to Norfolk for the um, official visit. Um, he flew back and then met us on the jetty when we got back. So there's family and friends on the jetty, um, and uh, uh, yeah, we uh, we shut things down uh, at that point, and then we've been on leave ever since. Matter of fact, I'm wearing my uniform just for you. I'm, I'm actually on leave. <laughs> <laughs> and you were and so gracious
1: to do so. You are the captain. The first captain yeah. of HMC i happy to wear it. Very proud can. to be wearing my uniform. I love it. I love it. So, Commander Gleason, as we round out this discussion about this historic deployment, um, I'm sure you have tons of reflection back on it. But if I were just to ask, how do you summarize it for yourself and for the Royal Canadian Navy?
2: Yeah, I think um, I think we, you know, there there is no secret that in 2015 the ship was being called a slush breaker. Right. I mean, that's that's what some of our government, our politicians, um, some senators were referring to what we were getting. Um, They doubted the capability um, and they doubted the outcome of the ship. I had senior officers that retired come up to me uh, when I was appointed to uh, Harry Wolf back in 2014. Um, Ah, there's the captain of the ship that nobody wants Um, because they didn't understand it. Right, right, they didn't right. understand the capability, and that, that that's not a slight on them uh, to to say that kind of stuff because that's just people talking, right? I mean, if they don't know, they don't understand something. Sometimes people will will just go off on and and say things that's, uh, that, that 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 aren't quite right. Sure, and you know, personally, I i i i had my I wouldn't say my doubts, but I, I was I, I was concerned about the. Um, uh, the level of attention that the ship would get if I wasn't successful, because um, I was given a lot of responsibility by my admirals. They trusted me um, and uh, I love them for it, um, for giving me the opportunity and my commodores and the captains that I all worked, that I worked for throughout the years um, and all my mentors throughout the years, the, they, they all had an input into everything that, um, that portrays the, the work that we did and the work the ships are going to do. And, you know, when you bring a ship into into service, it's just the hull of the ship. When you start introducing the crew and you start doing work and, um, you know, even the, the affiliation with the Kikitani region, all that stuff contributes to the life of the ship and the ship starts to get a soul. Yeah. And um, and so that's it.
1: The ship has a soul. It has an amazing soul. I felt it. I felt it on board that ship. Yeah. And I and I see it in you. I see it in you know, that that is that is so clear to me, and it's it's a beautiful thing. It is an absolutely beautiful thing. Um, Commander Gleason, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to share war story with me, the story of HMCS Harry DeWolf, this historic circumnavigation that class's first operational deployment. Um, what an amazing story,
2: and I think you guys knocked yeah, it out of the park. Yeah, apart. I agree.
1: Thank you very much.
2: I'm so proud of the crew, and so proud of the families that supported them throughout that time, because they can't do it by themselves, right? It's, right. Uh, those family, the families that are back home that are cheering for you. Um uh, that are supporting you, taking care of the kids, and all those and all those things that uh, you can't do when you're away. Um, just just amazing contribution from everybody. Um, you know, even even my wife France there, she's uh, incredibly supportive. Uh, took you know took took care of everything while I was away. Broken water heaters, all the stuff that happens when you go away. It happens here. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. right.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and that can't be understated. It's like. You know, it is greater than just a ship. It's the families that are behind taking care of business too. That's And, and you know, thankfully now with communication such as, as you said, you, know, you can keep in touch with family. Uh, that must make things a bit easier. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, they certainly are part of what makes a ship and its crew succeed.
2: Yep. Can't do it without them.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, Commander Corey Gleason of the Royal Canadian Navy commanding officer of HMCs MCS here anymore. Thank you again so much for your time. Uh, I hope people enjoyed this chat, and, and I hope people listen to this and take in a bit of history and remember this deployment. There's only one first, and you did it. Yep, we did thank Thanks uh, for telling thank, us, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to chatting with you again, Commander Leeson, it, it'll be an honor. Thank you, sir. Take care.
0: Hey folks, here is a final word from TALUS before we close. For almost 60 years, TALUS has been a partner to Canada, enabling mission success, strengthening the economy, and contributing to a sustainable future. Its Halifax site has earned awards for eco-efficiency. The same will be true for its new West Coast facility being developed in partnership with the Malahat Nation. Sustainability demands stability. Through Aegis, Talus is proud to serve those who serve, and do so in ways that help make our world safer, greener, and more inclusive. So thanks everybody for joining us for this episode, and for the previous two episodes. I want to thank Commander Gleason for his time and kindness in sharing his perspective of the inaugural deployment of HMCS Harry DeWolf, And I also want to thank the crew for their hospitality when I was aboard the ship. There's over four hours of content across these three episodes with Commander Gleason, and that's because we believe these firsts must be preserved. We work hard to bring great guests to you, so please like and subscribe, and please let your friends know about us too. You can also find us on YouTube by searching Go Bold with Jody, and please like and subscribe there as well. So thanks again to TALUS and to our sponsor, Cubic Defense. We hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are, and we look forward to you joining us for another great episode of Go Bold. Take care, everyone.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is "Parasail" by Silent
0: Partner.